We cover phony fights in the ring and real fights in the locker room. And we're going to take a look back at superstar Billy Graham. And to join me in all this and so much more, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you. He's the CEO of the American Anti-Drooling Association. You slobber, he'll clobber. The great Brian Last, everybody. Hey, Derek. I mean, aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again for the Sergeant McCoy Comedy Hour. Oh, but you know, it, it, it never gets old for us, but I bet it will here real soon one of these days for the uh, the spectators out there, the people in the audience, the people in the seats. Do you have your popcorn ready, folks, and your Cokes ready to go for another big night of action here on the experience? You've got your ringside seat. We're ready to go. You know, I I watched something here a, a couple days ago now, I guess it's been, it, it was a um, a sneak peek at a show that we'll talk about in a second, but it made me realize, because the, the subject of this particular program was like a lot of us. When, when we were all kids, you know, whatever time period that was or whatever era that was, we, you know, when we were wrestling fans, we were kids, we wanted to wrestle with each other, right? We wanted to do what we saw on television. That's how a lot of people got into business. Did, did you ever do that, Brian? Were you, did you ever go through that phase or did you go straight to reading the Wall Street Journal when you quit pissing the bed? Did I go to what phase? The, the phase where you wanted to do wrestling matches with your friends. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there you go. Every year at the end of uh, summer, I would have a SummerSlam party for me and all my friends from summer camp, and it would always end in a giant battle royal on the front lawn and truth this is not a a phenomenon unique to kids that were wrestling fans because remember jerry jarrett didn't open louisville up till 1970 i was almost nine years old by the time that there was even wrestling again here in town it took me a year or two to find it but when we were in second grade, we had Batman fights. If you get the teacher out of the room, right? Guys are taking bumps over the desk because Batman was on network TV and it was fucking hot. So it was the same thing, right? Did you have anyone there yelling like, pow, zap? Oh, you had to. <laughs> you had to kerplunk. <laughs> you know, and... That's right. It, it, you know, it, it, it sound make vomit sounds. You know, but so you were... When you were a kid in some fashion, either from Batman on TV or from watching wrestling, you were working fights when you were kids, right? Not trying to hurt each other, but have it. And or if you on Westerns, Wild Wild West, every Western saloon fight ever on a TV show, same fucking thing. And so I guess what I'm asking, Brian, is just at the top of the program here, 
where the fuck did we go wrong? Where did society go wrong? Where did the, the human race go wrong? The, these innocent things that we used to do when we were kids, and most of the time, if somebody got a bloody lip or a bumped in the nose or whatever the fuck, we didn't have a generation of teenage goofballs growing up either trying to have wrestling matches on trampolines so they could do flips or actually beating the shit out of each other for real in, in, in order to somehow entertain each other and themselves. Where did we go wrong with this? It, it went from fight Batman TV scenes and watching wrestling to, well, we got to fucking have a barbed wire goddamn broom dildo uh, set up on a table on a scaffold in our backyard with a trampoline. I think it really changed when the first generation of people who watched wrestling videos started training, and then the next generation did. And as things kept changing overseas, people kept trying to do that stuff over here, whether it made sense or not, whether it worked or not. Next thing you know, you start having schools pop up with suspicious trainers, not necessarily like bad people, but the fuck does this guy know about a hip toss? <laughs> and then the more of that and the more we're training, you know, you used to hear stories and I'm not saying this is necessarily the right thing. Like I didn't take a bump for six months or whatever. You hear that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that's right, but I also don't think you should be teaching people to come off the top rope. Like within but, the first several months too. But like there's no, a, but you, but here's the thing. You're passing up my point in that the inclination wasn't there to do something that even had a probability, much less a certainty, of causing damage to yourself or the other person. I've talked about, yes, when I was a teenager, you know, yes, we're having matches. I had a mattress laid out in the floor of my room here at the castle. And then Mama Cornette said, Jimmy, there's a crack in the living room ceiling. Y'all got to quit that. And then we go over to my opponent's house, and he lived in an apartment over the fucking dry cleaners. So we had a match on the weekend. They came in on Monday morning here with fucking plaster over all the clothes. <laughs> and then finally, we the, one of the kids that was affiliated over to high school sports team as a trainer, they actually gave him a key to the fucking locker room and they had wrestling mats. So over a few shows, we had wrestling mats and they even had the wall padded up about three or four feet. So you could use it as a turnbuckle. And, but uh, the thing is we weren't trying to imitate Mike Pappas, we didn't need a trampoline. I didn't have a trampoline, didn't know at the time when I was a teenager where the fuck a trampoline was, and nobody I knew knew where a trampoline was. But how could you have a wrestling match on a trampoline to stand and punch each other and complain to the referee that somebody pulled your hair? It would be too dodgy of a fucking footing. But at the same time, every, you know, you take a fucking body slam on somebody's living room floor or try to do a sunset flip or whatever. You only do one or two of those. It's not as fun as it was a minute ago. But finally, we get mats. We're still, again, everybody wanted to be the heel, but we wanted to be stars. We didn't want to be Mike Pappas. We wanted to be Jerry Lawler or Jimmy Valiant or Joe LaDuke. And how the fuck do they punch each other like that? 
We know they can't be hitting each other as good as it looks and sounds like, but we can't do it. A couple times we tried is like, oh, Jesus Christ. And a body slam was a big fucking deal because it's, it's still, it's fucking mats, and we don't know what we're doing. Then if I got up on the fucking side thing to use as a turnbuckle, I'll come off with the elbow. The other guy's going to move because of both of our common sense that I don't really know if I can do this then I might cave your goddamn face in. And because the same, if I'd fucking come off on him, that he would want to come off on me and I wasn't going to let that happen because he didn't know what the fuck he was doing either. But we were having, we were, hey, referee, pull my fucking hair, right? The heel goes in the fucking tights for the foreign object and boom, the headlock shot. We're having a fucking match like the stars do on television. And if, you know, and if there's six people in the crowd, because if there's six people involved in the wrestling, I think there was a few friends and a little sister, they're going, hey, referee's got some in his tights. I think there was a time where, not just in your area, but in various places across the country, to play with your friends and be a wrestler, it was kind of more like Andy Kaufman being a heel. And it was probably as physical as him against the women, and that it's real, but no one's trying to kill each other. But then when things like, you know, for me and my friends, and again, I'm talking the late 80s, not even like at its peak in 83, but we all did the Superfly splash into the pool. You know what I mean? Like, that was the thing. Or get yeah. on the dresser and do the Superfly splash onto the bed. I never in my life thought, I gotta try a moonsault. And I never yeah. would have done it in that situation where I'm wrestling with my friends. So I don't know if that answers any of your question, but I'm trying to think of examples that almost do. Well, but that's the the point is that now, not only do we have the trampoline cowboys, remember they showed footage of Jungle Boy on AEW television when he was a kid training in some guy's backyard with the fucking ring next to the privacy fence. And, but we never, there was not a ring again anywhere around Louisville, Kentucky set up within. 75 miles in any direction set up except for Tuesday nights from five o'clock till 10 o'clock at the Louisville gardens. And it stayed at the gardens in the, in the basement. They, but you couldn't get in a real ring, but we had sense enough to know that not only do we not know how to do this shit and we don't have the equipment, but even if we got in a goddamn ring, we still, the first thing we wouldn't want to would want to learn would not be, Oh, let me jump off the top rope outside toward the concrete floor where some fucking knucklehead's going to maybe catch me. It's just insane. As as the so I think that's we've not only got guys practicing for a career in wrestling by how they can do flips on a trampoline, but then the only attractive thing for them to learn about the business is shit that could probably end your fucking career before it starts if you're trying to do it to begin with unless you're properly trained and even then it's risky. Nobody wants to just learn how to what the stars do that draw money. Uh, I think it's something to do with the mental state of current society. I'm not sure what. But again, though, I think... If there was an open door policy to professional wrestling, 
even in the mid eighties, but certainly before then you probably would have had more people doing things like that. Not necessarily like triple moonsaults into the crowd or anything, but it would have been pushing boundaries past where the people who, like you said, are wrestling professionals are not only knowledgeable about how to make money, but knowledgeable about how to protect the business so that it can make money in the future. But now there's an open door policy. So when you have a flood of people getting into the business, who are the people that just want to do a moonsault off their roof? You're not necessarily getting as many of the, you know, WWE tries to get genuine athletes and draft them, but, you know, that's a hit and miss thing. But you're not getting the same kind of people that got into the business, sometimes for better, but often for worse, now than you did then. I blame Heyman for the furniture. Okay. I think he has to bear the brunt. If I've got to take the blame for the fucking triple threat match, he's got to bear the brunt for the fucking furniture. When you say furniture, though, you're talking about like Sabu probably gets the blame or the credit for the table, right? Well, I'm talking about ECW's platform and influence on, the, you know, there's never been a situation where common, ordinary, decent furniture that was a provided a service to the american public was so abused and mistreated ordinary decent furniture ordinary decent furniture that had a long life of service to give and was recklessly destroyed by those angry wrestlers who were mad at that furniture but anyway that's just uh yeah yeah i uh, again I've been a wrestling fan, and I went, I went and like like I said, when I was a teenage kid, everybody still wanted to be the heel. If you were a teenage guy, nobody wanted to be the baby face. But yeah, we all wanted to be Ric Flair. We all wanted to do something just so we could strut and woo. Yeah, it wasn't because I wanted someone to chop me in the chest and flip me upside <laughs> down. And there was still a little bit of self-preservation instinct left in the in the brain of people at that point. All right. But anyway, the reason why I brought that up. This has been happy talk. Well, it's very happy, poss possibly even slappy. Um, the reason why I brought that up is because the debut of season four of Dark Side of the Ring is uh, almost upon us on Tuesday night, May 30th on Vice TV. Watch it while you can, folks. I hear there's a broke they can't pay attention. But it, it shouldn't reflect on our friends Evan and Jason because their their hands are clean and all of that. Uh, but nevertheless, this season on Dark Side, the first episode is on Chris Candido and Tammy Sitch. And it, the reason why I'm even promoting you watch this because I think everybody's had enough of Tammy. To be quite honest with you, but this episode is. Chris's story and Tammy's in it. Um, ah, shit. And if you want to see a 46-minute program plus commercials where me, Lance Storm, Tom Pritchard, and Chris's brother Johnny all break down and cry and walk off, this is the, the program. Um, obviously, Tammy played a big part in it because she played a big part in his story but it's from chris's viewpoint and from a lot of his friends impressions of him and it you know he was a kid he when he was a teenager when he was like 14 he was sneaking off with his friend to go wreck because now up back then up there in jersey in the northeast and in late 80s 
there were guys with rings all over the place and they were independent shows and all that type of thing. And he was under the radar, you know, bumping around in some of these rings when he was 15 years old or whatever. And then just, and he was a kid that was fascinated by the business and wanted to be in it. It was his dream. So I just, I want to prep everybody. That's going to be the debut episode and it's on Tuesday night, May the 30th on vice. And next week, we're going to try to have Evan Husty back on to talk about that one. And another episode this season is going to be on the Graham brothers. And we're going to talk about, obviously, Billy Graham here later on in the program and the Graham families uh, as, as a whole, their basically involvement with and impact on uh, the McMahon family for a 50-something year period. Uh, but anyway, so that's uh, we'll try to have Evan on next week to talk more about that. But that's what brought it up. But Chris, again, was another one of us who, as a kid, just loved wrestling. But he took it to new extremes and, and was driven to be not only part of it, but the best at it. And they, they did a real good job on, on the program. It's not Tammy's story. Tammy's in it is, is the best part of it. Are you ready for Reggie's corner, Brian? Oh yeah, let's. Oh yeah, lift the mood up and go to Reggie's corner. Well, now you know. Sometimes that happened. No, this actually, I got a letter, um, and this was not a recent passing, but it was something we talked about here on the show a few weeks ago uh, on Reggie's corner. I'm pretty sure it was. Sam from Montana wrote. Remember we were discussing feline AIDS, cat AIDS. And I think you brought it up for some reason. And I said, is that, <laughs> is that a thing? And then you were Googling it and et cetera. Why did I bring that up? <laughs> I don't remember now. It's been lost to history or potentially yeah. one of the listeners who pays more attention to what we say than we do can bring this to light and shed a little information on it but anyway sam from montana and that is his real name damn you says i found out it was a real thing when i adopted my best friend spice his nickname was mister a little over six years ago i had recently been released from a halfway house because i was a shit kid and had to learn a lesson and had moved to a new town where i didn't know anybody and my closest family was over a hundred miles away I live in Montana where a tumbleweed is your closest neighbor. So I needed a companion. I was going to adopt another cat when I was told that Mr. really needed a home. I met him at the vet the next day and he took right to me. Uh, come to find out he was to be euthanized the day I adopted him. Uh, we became inseparable over the next five years and formed a bond that I've never had with a cat before. Uh, but they had the vet had told him about Spice's condition. And he says, I knew he wouldn't, I wouldn't have him forever as he was five when I adopted him. And the FIV shortens cats' lifespans much like it does with people. The fall before last, his health started deteriorating and I almost lost him. Brought him home after a costly vet bill, but he required IV fluids and developed kidney problems. I managed to buy eight more months' time with him until last May he got sick again. And unfortunately, he was on his eighth life. But feline cat AIDS is a thing. And Sam, we hate to hear about Mr. Spice, but... No. What? 
He didn't say his name was Mr. Spice. He said his name was Spice and Mr. Well, was his nickname. Well, that's why I said Mr. Oh, you don't have to call him Mr. Oh, come on. He literally said his name is not Mr. Spice. He said it's Spice and Mr. is his nickname. Well, all right, Spice, a.k.a. Mr. There you go. We hate to hear about Spice, a.k.a. Mr. Or Mr., a.k.a. Spice. Or if you want to do abbreviated, Mr. Spice. Oh! You doesn't gotta call him. Sam, we're sorry you live in Montana also. Um, and one more here real quick. Um, Where did that come from? Well, if somebody's got a feel for the guy, right? What's wrong with Montana? What's right with Montana? Ted Turner. Is the... He's the only one in Montana, besides Sam. Well, he owns most of it. Now that Mr. Spice is gone. No, Spice, a.k.a. Mr. Well, Tomas, a.k.a. Tomas, from Portugal, sent an email in, and he said it would mean the world to me if you could mention my dog Max during Reggie's, Reggie's Corner. Our beloved Max passed away a year ago due to old age, but today, the day that Tomas was writing the email, he would have been 19 years old, so he lived to be 18. Uh, being an only child and a shy eight-year-old at the time, I struggled making friends growing up, and when my father brought him home the runt of the litter, I swore to protect him and give him shelter. And Max brought me happiness and comfort when I needed it the most. We did everything in our power for him to have a good life in our tiny but humble home. He was my best friend and a family member. And everyone loved our Max. So, Tomas, we're sorry to hear about Max, but what a what a life. 18 years old, being the 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 star of the show, the uh the bell of the ball, the hit of the party. You wish you could live a life like that, Brian Last. Sounds like my life. I believe the bell of the ball, but I, all right. Um, and one more from Ray from Cleveland. Had to be a guy from Cleveland. It doesn't have to call me Ray. Well, yeah, I ain't going to call him much more after I... Let, let me just tell you what Ray is writing me here. If you've read the writing that Ray's written, you'll know that it's really not well-written writing. Actually, you could call him Ray, now that I think about it. That was one of the names you were allowed to call him. Yeah. That was the well, first see, one. Yeah, that was the first one. You had a hard time sifting through all those. You couldn't even get past the first one. See, you don't have to call him Mr. Johnson. Why, you could call him Ray, or you could call him Jay, or you could call him Ray J, or you could call him Raymond J, or you could call him Raymond J. Johnson Jr., but you doesn't got to call him Johnson. He doesn't say you can't call him Mr. Johnson, though. That's interesting, an interesting little twist we never thought of before. Well, that's because he was friends with Mr. Tibbs. All right, from Ray from Cleveland. <laughs> okay, yeah. I am a newer listener from Cleveland, Ohio. Well, fuck you, Ray, because listen to this. This horse shit here. On a recent episode of the Jim Cornette Experience, Jim said that the only good tarantula is a dead tarantula and that tarantulas were not welcome to be featured in Reggie's Corner. I recently got involved in the tarantula keeping community. <laughs> What is that? <laughs> I don't know, but they need to be on a federal watch list. And he goes on to say, and I was disappointed <laughs> to hear these comments. While I understand that spiders aren't everyone's cup of tea. Yeah. 
And I know that there isn't the same bond between them and their owners like that between dogs or cats and their owners. It still has been a recent joy in my life getting to provide care to a pet again after not having any for several years. I hope that Jim reconsiders and that when my eight-legged friends eventually cross the Rainbow Bridge, that they could be featured in Reggie's Corner. Let me explain something to you, Ray. You're lucky you didn't give me your exact street address, and I may be able to find you if you don't use ExpressVPN. What? And if I do, your eight-legged friends are crossing that fucking bridge at a high rate of speed. They'll be burning rubber across that rainbow. Tarantulas, the what? joy. What are you saying? You're going to go there and kill his animals? I'm going to kill them. <laughs> no, I'm don't say that. I'm no. going to stomp them dead. You're going to stomp on them. That's going to be your gonna method. I'm going to stomp them. I'm going to run over them. I'm going to fucking back up and drive over them again. I'm going to spray them with a can of Raid. I'm going to set fire to them with gasoline. How are you going to start? You said you're going to start with stomping? Well, I can't stomp them while they're on fire with gasoline. I'll hurt myself and set myself on fucking fire. You know they can move. If you're stomping on more than one, it's more than likely if you're trying to stomp on one, you may miss it. Even if you get well, it, the other ones are there to no, do something. No, because I got a can of Raid in each hand, and I'm whooping them around, <laughs> and I'm a stomping like a flamenco dancer, Jose Greco over here with my... I'm going to have big cl cloppy clown feet also. So I get two for the price of one stomp, and I'm going to be a stomping, and I'm going to be a spraying, and I'm going to be a whomping, and I'm going to be a spraying. And they'll think it's spider Armageddon by the time I get done. No, Ray. Don't you know they capture bugs? They help keep the bugs out of your house? I don't, I don't have any bugs in my house. Because you got I good spiders. If I had tarantulas in my house, I wouldn't be in my fucking house. What are you afraid the tarantula's going to do? It's going to be here and bite me and live while I die, <laughs> curled up in a corner, sh shivering and shaking in convulsions. No, no, Ray, no, the tarantulas will not be a part of Reggie's corner. I don't know how you can care for a tarantula. What in the fuck are you, are you getting a fucking haircut from all that hairy fucking back onto the goddamn, Jesus Christ. You can care for anything. Did you have a pet rock in the 70s? Brian, I live in the woods. I had I had tons of pet rocks. I meant the actual gimmick that was sold rocks in stores. And trees and no, actually, I did have one for a short time there. I do not know what happened to that. It was given to me. I did not purchase it. But uh, but no, I had actual living. Someone gifted you a pet, pet rock. Things. Well, that was just something you did back in those days. Yeah, here, take one of these. I don't fucking know why. I didn't ever give anybody a rock. Anyway, but except raised tarantulas. And I've got, while I got the big floppy shoes on my feet stomping, and I got both hands floppy full shoes. of raid spraying. <laughs> big floppy shoes? What yeah. kind of shoes are you wearing? I'm wearing big fucking, like, goddamn <laughs> snowshoes. Snowshoes. So I'm stomping all of them spiders, and they're fucking the guts, spider guts everywhere, all over the floor of the omnis. Spider guts. And monkey shit. Anyway, um, no tarantulas. All right, where are we at here? This has been Reggie's Corner. Yes. Send your yep. submissions to cornydrythrough at gmail.com. No tarantulas.
I do have an email here from our friend Frank Culbertson out in the great Pacific Northwest. Is doing a great job, he and Mike Rogers and all those guys, of keeping the Portland history alive. Absolutely. Um, but in this case, remember we were talking about, the, he's referencing something we were speaking about on the program here recently, that Darby Allen announced that next year, one of the things he's going to do, he's not going to jump over his fucking house on a moped anymore. He's going to climb Mount Everest. Remember we heard about this. You yes, remember I, that? Yes, I do remember yes, this. Yes, yes, yes. I'm I, the one I, who told you about this. Yeah, well, that's why I thought you'd remember. Well, Frank writes, hey, Jim and Brian, here is some stuff on Everest. Because as we mentioned, we said, well, there has to be, I don't know, some preparatory period and some education or training or something. You can't just show up and they say, okay, here, you know, follow the fucking guide, stay on the rope line or whatever. And we said maybe, you know, we know Darby likes to try the, he wants to be the first wrestler to ever climb Mount Everest. And remember you looked up, there's only been a few thousand people that have done it to begin with. And then I was seeing on Twitter, uh, people were saying something, oh, well, they have the Sherpas now, they take rich fucks up there that have nothing better to do. And it, it sounded like it was just a walk through Central Park. Well, apparently Frank has the real scoop here. So. Uh, hey, Jim and Brian, here's some stuff on Everest. Do you think Tony Khan would allow him to try? As given that it takes a full one to two years minimum to prepare. Oh, wow. Should, should we assume Darby will be off TV and AEW very soon? He definitely is in shape, but not climbing shape. And I guess Frank knows everything about mountains because they got, they got a couple big mountains out there in Seattle, right? Oregon, too. Mount Rainier. Of course. I, th I thought he was a fucking prince in Monaco. That's Prince did he, did he Did he buy the fucking mountain? Did, no. They're buying all of our goddamn landmarks. Fucking Brits. Well, he's, anyway. he's not British, but anyway. <laughs> well, he's a prince. <laughs> anyway, Frank goes on. <sighs> the majority of successful climbers on Mount Everest are experienced climbers with significant mountaineering experience. Climbing Mount Everest is an extremely challenging and technically demanding undertaking that requires a high level of physical fitness, mental toughness, and technical expertise. Many climbers who attempt the climb have years or even decades of experience climbing other mountains and training for high-altitude expeditions. Uh, successful climbers on Mount Everest typically have a, a wide range of skills and experience, including, good Lord, Proficiency in technical climbing techniques, familiarity with high-altitude conditions, and experience in managing risk and making sound decisions in challenging and rapidly changing environments. Managing risk and making sound decisions. I'm thinking Darby Allen. They also typically have extensive experience in planning and executing complex expeditions, including managing logistics, navigating complex terrain, and coordinating with team members and support staff. While there have been some successful climbers on Mount Everest who were relatively inexperienced, they're the exception rather than the rule. Uh, the length of time it takes to prepare for climbing, I'm skipping around here a little bit because he's got all the, the scoop here. 
But the length of time that it takes to prepare for climbing Mount Everest can vary depending on a number of factors, including a person's current level of fitness and experience, their access to training resources, and their overall climbing goals. In general, it is recommended that climbers spend at least one to two years preparing for an expedition to Mount Everest. During this time, climbers will typically engage in a combination of physical training, mental preparation, and logistical planning. Physical training may involve building endurance through activities like hiking, running, or cycling, as well as strength training exercises to prepare for carrying heavy loads, navigating difficult terrain. Mental preparation may involve developing strategies for managing stress and maintaining focus in high-pressure situations, as well as practicing problem-solving skills and decision-making in challenging conditions. Brian, Darby's going to scoot right up Mount Everest like he's climbing a telephone pole and he's been working for the phone company for 25 years because they just described sitting in the locker room at an AEW show. High-pressure situation, <laughs> practicing problem-solving skills in challenging conditions. That's his every Wednesday night, right? So he doesn't have to take time off. He's been prepping. Well, but he's still got to be riding that bicycle. Um, and then logistical planning may involve researching and selecting a reputable expedition company or guide. Because I guess you don't, you don't just like fucking, remember Flair met the pilot that crashed him in Wilmington at a bar and he said, yeah, I can fly you guys. Okay, that he got the job. Apparently you don't do that. Well, hey, I can take you to the top of Mount Everest. And it also said you have to obtain the necessary permits and visas and arranging for transportation, lodging, and equipment. So uh, a long and challenging journey awaits Darby Allen, or he could just be here on a wrestling show on fucking television earning his paycheck. And he can climb Mount Everest when he's retired and rich, or at least just retired, which the way he abuses his body may come before rich. What do you think, Brian? You want to go to Mount Everest? I'm not interested. Let him do whatever he wants. I mean, the way Tony books probably won't be on TV for six months anyway. I, d I gave up halfway up the path to Klingman's Dome one time in the Smokies. I said, fuck it. I'm, I'm as far up as I need to be. I've got a great view from here. Anyway, I'm also, I'll have you know, as far along as I need to be, on the orders coming into Cornette's Collectibles at jimcornette.com for the first time in about six weeks now since our big April sale. And I am handing off, let's say I'm trying to do the math on when you people are hearing this type of thing. This Tuesday, basically, I will, Tuesday or Wednesday, I will be handing off all of the remaining backlog of packages to the Feather Bottoms for processing and they will be in the mail stream by the weekend. So our long national nightmare has once again come to an end. And now if you want something, and we still got one of them, folks, you can go to jimcornette.com for the DVDs. The Inside the Ropes magazine is down to 200 and some copies. The breast cancer fundraiser action figure is down to, can't say copies, 200 and some items left of them. And uh, But as well, we have all the T-shirts and other material, including the Cult of Cornet membership certificates that have become your favorites out there. Maybe you need a replacement by now. If your T-shirt is worn out or one of my autographed photos is 
is fading because so many people have have looked at it and taken pictures of it. The flash photography does sometimes break down the chemicals in the ink. So if you don't want to put a a, a velvet rope uh, with a five-foot radius around the wall space where you have my autographed photo hanging for the low, low price of $15, then in that case, I advise you get another copy because all those people, over time, it, it will fade. You got the paparazzi coming into your living room to take a picture of my picture on your wall all the time, don't you, Brian? Did you see that story about Prince Harry and uh, Meghan this week where they claim that the paparazzi had a near, what was it? Near catastrophic. Yeah, in New York City, going through the streets yeah, of Manhattan. Yeah, they said they were a high-speed chase for two hours in a fucking, was I hearing in a cab? At some point, they got out of the car they were in and switched to a cab thinking yeah. it would throw off the paparazzi. But if you close your eyes and visualize it, it just sounds like a comedy movie. Quick, well, get out of the car. Run to that yellow cab. No one will see us. No, it sounds like a movie because there's no way that it's possible to have a high-speed anything in Manhattan except if you're in a movie. And they block the streets off. <laughs> and then you did... Who was it? Your police chief or one of the high-ranking muckety-mucks up there said, I've, I've heard these reports of a high-speed chase. I, I find that unlikely. How do you chase somebody around Manhattan for two hours? It would be like the fucking Mr. Herbert and the old Nazi war criminal on Family Guy in the slow-motion fight. You'd be fucking bumper to bumper for two hours. How do you chase anybody? Well, the other thing is they're chasing them to take photos of them, not to like, hit them with hammers or anything. So, well, why, yeah, well, that, so yeah. go somewhere. Like in two hours, there was nowhere else you can go? Okay, you don't want to go back to your hotel because you don't want them to know what hotel you're going in. There's nowhere else you can go that they couldn't just walk in behind you and take your photos? I don't know. Sounds uh, suspicious to me. Sounds fishy to me. You know what else sounds fishy to me? Young Brian Last, the whole situation going on in AEW um, that we just reported on on... A couple days ago on the drive-thru, your program, it was unfolding and the news was slipping out, eking out, dripping out, whatever, as we were recording the program. But just to bring everybody up to date, AEW has a brand new two-hour primetime television broadcast set to begin to debut on June 17th on Saturday nights on TNT called Collision. And at the network upfronts and the big announcements of same, they were supposed to announce that the star of our show would be CM Punk and the debut taping, or not taping, it's live, the debut broadcast would emanate from the United Center in lovely Chicago, Illinois, the Windy City, and the title that we have heard leaked for the uh for the event was the second coming and within what less than 24 hours before all those announcements were going to be made tony or someone in his periphery or orbit in the company managed to either fuck up <laughs> Or 
I we still don't know how the word got out that close to the. I say they were trying to fucking run one by him. I say they were trying to pull a fast one, and he found out about it in the nick of time. But they uh, reneged on their previous agreement, as has been reported by multiple sources, to not rehire A. Steel because A. Steel was rehired. Now we come to find out number of weeks or even months ago, part of, obviously, their contrition for him being the only one that got fired over this to begin with, when he's not the, he wasn't even the one that started it, he was just the one that finished it off. So they managed to fuck this up because Punk got word that no, they're not going to have A. Steel come back to work to do what he's supposed to be doing, which is being the agent and producer for the top star in the company on the brand new two-hour national cable television program. But instead, they'll, they'll send him a check. I guess they're, 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 they rehired him. They'll pay him. But he can just call Tony on the phone and tell him what, tell Tony what he thinks over the phone about shit. And that somehow they think that that is going to honor any kind of deal that was made to get all these parties back on television and moving forward with the new television program. And so obviously those announcements that I mentioned were not made because Punk said, oh, hell no. What the fuck? And again, Brian, and I will turn it over to you for any comment you might have or update you might be aware of, but it's another example of Tony making a deal that's a deal until somebody tells him they don't want him to make a fucking deal. Am I correct in this? Again, we don't know because we can't really say what Tony Khan's mindset truly is, but it seems like from everything we've seen publicly reported, Tony Khan is agreeing to certain things to the top talent that he's negotiating with. And then somehow from that point until execution, monkey wrenches keep getting thrown in the way that cause what we're supposed to believe is the boss's intent to not happen the way he wanted it to. And how many times does that need to happen before you make some changes? And again, the, information being leaked out or the well sources have said that some people in the company wouldn't be comfortable with ace coming back to work in person and we mentioned on the drive-through well those same people weren't comfortable with punk either which is why this whole ridiculous farcical fucking brand split that's not is being instituted to put him over there because the other ones are so fucking childish and immature and it's romper room that they can't fucking be in the same building with him and they're scared. And if you're, if you're a man, say you're a man, if you're a mouse squeak, but nevertheless, then the same guy that was on the same side of the issue that is being sent over here to Saturday night. Now the other guy can't be over there. Who's going to be uncomfortable over there? Does A. Steel have a long history of axe murder? Here is, is it a case of, 
you know what? I'm pretty sure if you don't fuck with this guy and you're not in a goddamn fist fight with a friend of his, he's probably not going to bother you. But again, we're assuming that, or you're assuming, because I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily a fair assumption that the talent are really the ones causing this not to happen. Well, in, in uh, <laughs> double duty talent or EVPs. The point is the, the offended parties that are still have their panties in a twist over a fight in a locker room six months ago, them or their friends would have the only reason to have any issue with this whatsoever, right? But is this not happening? Or the way this didn't happen? However you want to look at it. Because it happened. Ace is, apparently Ace Steel, from what we've seen publicly reported, has been under contract to AEW since April. So... For everyone who thought Jericho pitched the idea of Ace Steel, no. He was already working there, apparently. And for everyone who thought it wasn't going to happen until everyone cleared it, no, Tony already said yes. So now it becomes about the execution. And again... Because they, they're paying him to work. They just won't let him come to work. Yeah, no, they want to give him an... They want to give him, it seems like, an Iron Sheik deal. Where it's like, here's all this money. Stay home. Just we don't want to see you. Here's a bunch of money not to be seen. But the question really is, is Tony Khan's legal team or his advisors, whoever you want to think of here, are they telling him Ace can't be here because the talent are upset? Or are they telling him Ace can't be here because you and your dad will get sued if he bites another person? <laughs> Like, what is that? That's the thing we don't know. We're all making assumptions. What is Tony okay. actually being told by his team? Okay, I've got a great gimmick then. Put him in the fucking Hannibal Lecter mask, and he'll be the hottest heel in the fucking company. Wheel him out, and he's got the thing where he can't bite anybody. But it, be the hottest heel in the locker room. Again, I think back, and in the history of wrestling, how many fights and incidents there have been amongst people that then whether they either turned it into fucking uh, money in, in terms of at the gate or just learned to coexist or one guy moved on and went somewhere else to defuse the situation or whatever. And I've this was not that big of a fucking deal. A guy got a fucking black eye punched in the face. A guy got fucking whacked over the head with a chair. A guy got bit on the arm. For fuck's sake. And this has been six months ago. And if again, if you're talking about someone who was involved in something, asking other people or, you know, the legal liability or fucking, you know, is someone uncomfortable with this person around this, a fucking wrestling business. Do you think in 1996, Vince looked across his dining room table from me at a booking meeting and said, Hey Jim, I know you're, you're friends with Arn Anderson. You guys have known each other for a while, but do you mind if I book Sid Vicious, even though that he stabbed Arn multiple times with a pair of scissors and sent him to the hospital with a goddamn blood loss? It never came up. And I knew not to fucking bring it up because he was going to do what he was going to do. And also, we were pretty sure that we kept a halfway good eye on Sid. He wasn't going to fucking stab anybody anymore. Someone called the seamstress. Hide all the scissors. Sid is in the house. 
Well, they did go to plastic utensils and catering, but nevertheless, <laughs> that may have been a co coincidence. But I actually liken this, truthfully, more to Randy Savage, Bill Dundee, Jerry Lawler, Jerry Jarrett. Think about this for a second. You've got two guys that have tremendous heat because of a real-life situation, Randy Savage and Bill Dundee. Everybody knows the story. Savage ambushed Dundee in the parking lot in Nashville at the gym and broke his jaw. And Dundee was off for about, I think it was about four, four to six weeks that uh, it not only cost him money, but it cost Jerry Jarrett money because Dundee was a main event guy. But then, what was it? Two years later or whatever, all of a sudden now, ICW is folding. Angelo calls Jerry, tries to make some peace. Well, as we've talked about with our Mid-South deep dives and our retrospectives on the Midnight Express and all the things that were happening at that time in, Mid in Memphis and Louisiana, Jerry Jarrett was best friends with Bill Dundee. They'd been, Dundee had been his booker. And it, one of his top stars for fucking years. And here's goddamn Randy Savage, who not only had worked for the Outlaw promotion, that had done everything they could to damage their business, but had actually fucking broken Dundee's jaw and put him out of business for fucking six weeks. Cost him all money. But Jerry Jarrett says, I got a fucking way to make that money back. And at the same time, Lawler and Dundee had been grading on each other, so... Jerry Jarrett gets Bill Dundee uh, the job as booker for Bill Watts. Dundee makes more money in 1984 than he'd ever made in the wrestling business up to that point, which was a pretty penny. Bill Watts has his record year with Dundee booking. We all get jobs. Then Jarrett brings Randy Savage and Lanny Poffo in and Angelo. And he didn't ask any of, of, of fucking Dundee's friends. Do you mind? I know he broke Bill's jaw and fucked with him for a long time, but no, because it wasn't. There was no more personal issue. The it was diffused, and now they were doing business. And Lawler works with Savage, and trusts him with his body, and they draw money. It's God damn it. And actually, I should mention if people think, well, a broken jaw and getting clocked over the head with a chair. Depending on which story you believe, he was either fucking had nucks in his hand or was using Dundee's gun that he'd wrestled away from Dundee to fucking pistol whip him. Because there was a firearm involved in that and it was almost used. There's serious shit that goes on with people. But they... Again, this, is, well, this was nothing but one of these fights in Major League Baseball. This wasn't even nobody was after somebody with a gun in the parking lot. Nobody used a razor blade. <clears throat> you know, a couple a couple seasons ago, uh, the Mets got a big uh, shortstop, Francisco. Well, and Heidi's short, but Francisco Lindor, who is a all star shortstop, and he didn't necessarily fit in so great that first year. It was a little awkward, and there was a situation where he and Jeff McNeil, between innings, reportedly he had Jeff McNeil against the wall by his throat. They were having some kind of physical issue because it's something that happened on the field. After that game, when the media asked about it, both guys said, oh, there was a squirrel. We were looking at squirrels in the, uh, in the hallway. <laughs> they protected it. They were mad at each other. 
They settled it. Now they're good. But they weren't going to let it spill out. They were going to deal with it, not go and say, I demand to be traded away from this team because that animal is there. And and again, and either handle it or don't handle it, but keep it in house. Everybody had to hear about this because everybody's a drama queen now. And most of these guys in the locker room had never seen anybody have an actual fight in the locker room before. But there were, that's why I'm saying for, if you're in the wrestling business, and even if you've only been in it a while, if you had some whiff of the actual business before it turned into this Disney on ice on tour thing. This was not a big goddamn deal. As we talked about at the time, the only unusual aspect of the all out post scrum bench clearer was that number one, there was a group of people involved on each side. It's usually one on one side and one on the other and a bunch of people trying to break it up. And two, that there was actually somebody representative of the office that was on one side of it. But the, otherwise, this was a minor incident. And I think, you know, everybody's told the story about Bruiser and Bruiser Brody, Dick the Bruiser and Bruiser Brody. Guy that uh, Brody, especially, but a lot of guys, if they weren't mad about their payoffs, that's the way they fucking went in and registered that displeasure and they either got fired or fucking paid. And then, does anybody now that I've said that, I guess half the people don't know what I'm fucking talking about. Probably not. Okay. Basically, Dick the Bruiser, and I remember this because I was still watching the TV as before I got into business, 1980, 81, Dick the Bruiser, the dying days of his promotion in Indianapolis, brings in Bruiser Brody, who they called King Kong Brody, uh, to work Indianapolis because Bruiser had no territory left and he needed a big name opponent. And he was like Indianapolis, Fort Wayne and a spot show or two, right? That was kind of it. And he was obviously expected to be fair with Brody. So anyway, one night Brody gets in his fucking, gets his check and says, this is bullshit and goes through the building to the babyface locker room and into Bruiser's locker room. And this is Dick the Bruiser. In 1955, he was Brock Lesnar. But this is 1981, and it's Bruiser Brody. And give and I think Brody even said, give Dick credit. He stood right up to me, and here we went. But Brody had Dick around the neck and was bashing his head against the fucking lockers and busted him open. And so the next night, they walked in the fucking building, and here comes Bruiser and hands Brody his fucking check. Point taken. It's not that big a fucking deal, except for these kids that are festering about it because they got beat in a fight, they got fucking told off at a press scrum, and everybody knows that the points were valid that Punk made. So they're fucking pussies need powdered, but. Move on. Get over it. It's ridiculous. Now they still keep putting, as you said, monkey wrenches in this thing. When deals are done and people are assuming that things are going to happen based on what they've been told, and then suddenly it's never that way. And every time that it's close to an announcement of punk or a return of punk, something like this happens. And they act like it's Punk's fault. It's Tony Khan's fault. He keeps allowing this to happen. It's his people. Tony Khan 
I don't care who he gets on the phone with and tries to be a peacemaker in this. He's letting this all happen. So in one way or another, he likes this drama. Anyway, what, one more real quick, because I love the Gary Hart missing link story. But it illustrates that this is childish shit these days. Fucking missing links work in Dallas for world-class Fritz von Erich. Gary Hart is the booker, Uncle Gary. And Link was a different type of individual. And at one point, he went up to Carrie. I don't know if they were married yet. I think it was still Carrie's girlfriend, later wife, and asked her if the carpet matched the drapes. So Gary, of course, hears about it. And Gary fucking calls Link over one day. And you, I, I don't know if... I'm sure it was probably more heated than this. I'm sure it was a longer discussion. Gary told me the story in brief, but I can hear in Gary's voice, brother, you cannot talk to the man's girl that way. If Fritz tell me to fire you, I'm going to fire you like that, and that's going to be a shame for both of us. So be cool, right? But apparently this did not sit well with Link. And he walks in the next day, and Gary's sitting on the goddamn bench in the lock in the sportatorium locker room there, those swinging doors and those old wooden benches. And Gary said he was sitting there, and he saw the door swing open, and suddenly, bam, side of his head exploded. Link, who was 260 and jacked up, had just sucker punched him right in the side of the fucking head, right in the temple. Knocked him to the floor with goddamn, you know, a blind shot, right? And Gary's on the floor and he's on his knees, on his bent over. But what Link was too stupid to realize about Gary, and I've seen it, if you ever see pictures of Gary Hart in the old days when they had heat in Florida or Texas or wherever, 60s and 70s, he's coming back from the ring, the cops are around him, he's got one of his kabuki or one of his tag teams, somebody with him. A lot of times you'd see he'd have his hand inside his jacket. Look like Napoleon sometime. Inside his, every time that Gary went to or from the ring, inside his jacket, not in his pocket where he would have to dip, but just taped right in there, he had a single-sided razor blade where he could lay hands on it at any time. Goddamn, nobody uses razor blades to shave anymore, Brian, but do they still know that there's the double-sided that are sharp on both edges and there's a single-sided that you can... Like when you scrape paint off glass and shit with one of those. When you get shaved at the barber. Well, well, a lot of people aren't that fucking opulent. <laughs> opulent? It costs like eight bucks. Well, it costs me fucking dick all of shit to shave myself, and I don't Sounds have too to expensive. Any, don't have to let anybody next to my throat with a fucking blade, but anyway... So Gary had a single-sided razor blade inside his jacket every time he was on the way to and from the ring, but even in his personal daily life, I've seen it. He had one of those flip-open wallets, like a, you know, two-sided thing, and you could just flip it open, and right inside that wallet that he kept right inside his jacket pocket was a single-sided razor blade with a piece of white athletic tape on the sharp side taped right there. He could pull that thing out. And when Link had clocked him and he had gone down on the ground face first on his knees, he reached in his jacket pocket and as Link got him to pick him up and do whatever the fuck, he just sliced the missing Link across the middle of his fucking stomach from asshole to appetite. 
And that'll change your fucking emotion real quick. And Link looked at that and fucking took and grabbed his bag and left. And that was his notice on both parts. He never came back and they never expected him back. And no cops were called and nothing ever happened. And Link went to work for Vince in the WWF. Remember, it was managed by Bobby Heenan. Well, that was very brief. And that actually may have been before then. I don't th I think it was it was the last time Link was in Dallas was 83, wasn't it? No, no cuz no. He had the brief run with Vince and then he worked for Watts in 86 and then I think he went back to work after that. He went back that. It was the last time. It yeah. was the last time cuz that was pretty much yeah, actually that was pretty much his notice from the business. He worked some outlaw shows in Texas after that. You know, but. and again an interesting figure not to go off on a too much of a side thing, but in an era when everyone had those big physiques he had already been a veteran for a long time, so all of a sudden he changed his physique and got really, I mean, I hate to say roided up, but that's what it looked like. Yeah, it, uh, yeah. And then it was said and that he shaved, also... Sh shaved the head. Nobody knew it was Dewey Robertson. Shaved the head, may have indulged in some extra uh, party favors during that period of time, so he was Dewey Robertson in the 70s. He was a completely different guy you talked to a lot of people in the 80s. Yes, and, and also became a nudist, from what I understand, at oh. one point. With that haircut, that's interesting. It was, yeah, it was, well, he didn't, he, nothing was, there was nothing sprouting anywhere else on him, just right on the front of the top of that was the only hair. Maybe that's the move. You go to the nude beach and no one looks at your tiny dick because everyone's looking at that hair. What the fuck's going on there? Well, what the fuck's going on here? So the point, I don't even know if we finished the topic, but basically <laughs> that's the update with, uh, <laughs> with punk and steel and any, um, I guess not, because I was about to say, I'm thinking of the repercussions of the Rogers, Bill Miller, Carl Gotch incident, and that was kind of the end of Buddy's career, or towards the end of it, within the last few years, so there weren't like 10 years after that where we could have seen how everyone coexisted. Yeah, that's, well, I guarantee you that uh, if Buddy Rogers had not had the heart issues and retired, that if he was still around as a booker or you know, top guy or whatever, that he would have tried to figure out some way to get even with both those guys. And it probably wouldn't have been hard to stop Gotch from being booked because the promoters didn't like him that much anyway because he's so fucking bland and didn't want to get beat. But Bill Miller was a star for another, what, 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Oh, and the, but in the meantime, some of these people just fade into obscurity. And you know what? Sometimes that's a good thing because, Brian, think about this. AEW and Tony Khan, his legal department or compartment or baggage or whatever he's got, they're not doing a good enough job of covering their tracks when they're going back on these deals or they're, they're leaving evidence laying around because, you know, people know who they are and where they are and all that kind of stuff, and you don't want that. In today's modern environment, when all these people are trying to put surveillance on you and put tracking on you and have satellites keeping an eye on you and watching what you do and your, your internet providers, they're in your walls, and they also, the Wi-Fi admin, whoever the fuck they are, they're keeping an eye on you. They're, they're writing everything down in their little notebooks. The hackers are waiting to hack into you and hack up your shit. That's why you need Express VPN on your team. And we've been talking about this as a matter of fact. Brian, now, uh, 
clarify this for me. You're saying that if you are, are a subscriber to ExpressVPN, not only, not only will they hide your unique IP address so that nobody can use that to find out your location or what you've been doing online, but also, were you explaining to me that it makes you completely invisible as a human being? To where that I did you not could just, say that. Well, now, I thought you were explaining to me that it's only if, if you're a subscriber. to. So, well, see, I thought it was just if you're a subscriber to ExpressVPN, then you can see other subscribers, but you can't see regular people. But you explained to me no. that it's it's in reverse that they can't see you. Because I remember I, you doing no. the John Cena thing where you said, I can't yeah. see you. And I did say that, and that was because you were talking about how this would make you invisible. And I was trying to explain that that is not correct. And I guess you've accepted that, so now you've assigned it to me. Like, I'm the one who said it. Well, but is there is there one side or the other in this that it'll make you invisible still, or nobody nobody is invisible? There is no cloak of invisibility in the uh, real world. Just your your information online, your online activity, whatever you've been up to. The virtual realm. photography? The wink, virtual wink. realm. The virtual realm. You're invisible in the virtual realm. So when you go out in the yard or you go out in your public life, if you have one of those virtual reality helmets and you put that on, then you'll be completely invisible and you can shoplift with impunity you can reach out and grab people up, up the ass and they won't know who's there because they can't see you. Well, no. That type of thing. No, not like that type of thing. No. Well, I thought if you were in the virtual realm, you'd be invisible. Well, but it's just, it's completely, it's only to your computer. And well, and also your cell phone. Well, as a matter of fact, they say ExpressVPN subscriptions cover up to five devices at the same time. So like you could make your computer invisible your laptop invisible your cell phone invisible um can you make your mother-in-law invisible yes part of the that covers up to five devices so you can protect your entire family i don't know whether you want to protect your mother-in-law but you can certainly make her fucking disappear if you talk to the right people well let's not joke about that well i'm saying you you <laughs> if you talk to expressvpn.com slash jce that's where you need to go expressvpn.com slash jce you can learn more about it you're going to get an extra three months free on a one-year package so let's say you want to get your mother-in-law gertrude gertrude phoebe bottom you want to get her an expressvpn subscription and you and they can make her disappear and nobody will know where she is or what she's up to because they won't be able to track her down Except if, if you're not close enough where you can hear that rapping on the fucking trunk of the hood of that fucking car, you're not going to know where Gertrude is. So again, folks, there, there will be no Gertrudes that will be in trunks with ExpressVPN. However, when you are at home on the Internet, you can climb into your trunk if you want to. That's up to you. You have the freedom to do that as an American citizen. It's probably not a great idea unless you have an exit plan. That's true. Some some cars have the little latch or a little button, but other ones don't. Then what are you gonna do? Well, right now you're gonna you're gonna go to expressvpn.com slash JCE because they are going to encrypt and reroute hundred percent of your outline or online activity and reroute it so that nobody can see it. 
one-click, five devices. They're rated number one by CNET. Aren't they the people in the Terminator that the machines were going to take over the world, CNET? No, that's C-SPAN. Oh, well, they say they're number one. Wired, Tech Radar, and countless others that are too numerous to count are all saying that ExpressVPN is number one and the big bad tech wolf is a, a menace to society. So to protect yourself against their prying eyes, go right now, expressvpn.com slash JCE, three months free on a one-year package. And how much is too much to spend on your security and peace of mind, for heaven's sake? Do you want some goddamn Russian troll bot from Vladivostok to have naked pictures of your Aunt Gertrude? Why does she have naked photos of herself on the computer? Well, fuck, she uploaded them to prison to cure the sex offenders. <laughs> ExpressVPN.com slash JCE. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad she got it out of the trunk to do that. Well, the poor thing, though, I'll tell you, if it wasn't for her acne when she was a teenager, she wouldn't have had any shape at all. Well, I think we were saying ExpressVPN. That's what I said. With the promo link and code. Not dot com slash jce just slash jce they'll do the rest express vpn express vpn all right because superstar billy graham's going to be the main event today the modern wrestling will jerk the curtain as it should and speaking of jerks we got to talk about aew on may the 17th there and I don't even know if you've got ratings. I even forgot to jot down to ask you about the ratings. But again, there's some things that don't even deserve to be talked about, but there's a couple of things that I've got to spend a little time on in this program. Wardlow opened the show, and he came to the ring, and he's got it. Which championship belt does he have now? What title does he own, possess? He has the TNT championship, which may once again be defended on TNT now that they will have a new show on TNT. Okay. Um, anyway, he came to the ring carrying his belt and in street clothes, not only wearing dress shoes with no socks, and I know for some people into the art of douchebaggery, that's a stylish thing, but the reason why he shouldn't have done this and why I hope he never does it again is because it called attention to something that I'd never noticed about him before. His calves are the same size around as Harley Quinn's. Oh, come on. He has His calves are half the size of his fucking arms. He has got a situation that some bodybuilders get that I've known several of them and from the 80s and 90s that were very fucking sensitive about it. His legs are tiny. He's got bird legs and that big upper body. And I don't even know about the thighs, just the calves. If you go back now and look, because he's wearing these fucking ridiculous, not only shoes with no socks, but these dress pants that uh, they're tight-legged dress pants. It shows he has no calves. Oh, my God. As, um... Should he get the Marcus Bagwell calf implant surgery? Well, and that, that's why Marcus, that's why they make those things because the bodybuilders get freaked out. Some people's genetics, they can't develop their calves and it kills their whole deal and they have well, calf implants. Well, some people also skip leg day. 
<clears throat> well, some people also goddamn like to have their balls nailed to a step stool, but nevertheless, in he, Germany, this fucking outfit didn't do him any favors. So I wrote, why? And he called Christian Cage out, who came out with Dino, and then they have a face-off in the ring where they're trash-talking off the microphone. But there is the dinosaur standing right there. And so they're face-to-face. -face. You know something's going to happen, and he's Wardlow has dared Christian to come out here and spit in my face, I dare you. So Christian hauls off to go spit in his face, and Wardlow grabs him, and Dino comes in, and they just get in a fight. You couldn't have... The punch exchange with Dino was horribly awkward because there's two big guys that can't get the fucking flow. And then Wardlow went to powerbomb Christian, but the heels, I think Christian nutshotted him after Dino distracted him again, and then they pull out a ladder out from under the ring. They've got this big fucker down. They could just beat him up. But instead, they pull out a ladder. Why, I wrote. And then Christian picks this fucking giant ladder up and tries to hit Wardlow in the head with it. And Wardlow reaches up and blocks it with both hands and not only blocks it, but diverts it at least two feet away from his head so it completely misses. And there's a smattering of booing, which I'm not sure was for the heels getting heat or from the phoniness of the ladder strike. I Did you see tell. the daylight through that? No, I had the same reaction. I couldn't tell exactly what the booing was for. I thought it may have been from it looking weak. So then they choke slam him on the ladder and bend it in half, and then they drag it back out, and Christian has to stomp it flat, and then Christian gives him his finish on the ladder. And then as soon as he did that, without anybody coming to help, referees were milling about outside the ring that weren't seen for a little while no wrestlers no whatever as soon as christian hits his finish within two seconds his music starts to indicate that the angle is over <laughs> and then the heels just stand up and raise their hands and walk off so they they gave it three but they hit him in the head with the ladder choke slammed him on the ladder gave him a finish on the ladder and why did they pull out a ladder? Well, we find out later on because he's going to challenge him to a ladder match. But it doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> what the f Why would Wardlow, this big six-foot whatever, 200-whatever-pound guy, want to fucking climb a ladder to begin with? And why did they feel the need if they didn't know that they were going to be challenged to a ladder match to pull out a fucking ladder and go through all that trouble? Yeah, that's the funny thing. I challenge you to a ladder match because I planted a ladder under the ring. How does that work? Yeah, well, and I challenge you to a ladder match because you people beat me up with a ladder. But why did you beat me up with a ladder? You could have beat me up yourself. You had me down. You kicked me in the nuts. You didn't need to go and drag something from... Uh... All right. Mm. Well, again, yeah. though, a, a bigger problem with AEW, and it just becomes more and more apparent with every, not even every show, but everything they announce. Have Christian and Wardlow had a regular match at any point? I don't think so. Every match, every Never. feud goes right to a fucking stipulation match. <laughs> every single match. It's like a desperate plea for a cheap pop. <sighs> Let's put him in a cage. 
All right. Speaking of something that ought to be in a cage, locked away from polite society, our little puppy Pockets, who is the star of this program now, you can't get away from him. He's teamed up with Darby Allen to take on Lee Moriarty and Big Bill. So one of the guys, the most popular guy, that's challenging for the World Heavyweight Singles title on the goddamn pay-per-view is being teamed up with the fucking joke mascot and working with two guys that are underneath guys at best in this environment that are presented as they barely ever, if ever, win. And we get 10 fucking minutes of that or whatever. 15 minutes, I think. <laughs> this was a what? very weird show in general for the treatment of the pillars in the four pillars match. It was almost like an, I mean, I think it just happened to be this way. I don't think they intended it for it to be this way. I'm pretty sure they didn't, but it was almost like, all right, we've given up on a few of you, <laughs> but we still have this pay-per-view match. So you'll be on the show, but you're not going to really be in the focus. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Were the, the Buckaroos, Maddie and Nikki, the Cucamonga kids, were they ever even announced as wrestling on this program? Not that I recall, but I'm actually not sure at all. I don't remember uh, the announcements beforehand of the matches. But though. it was like no match was changed or anything. They they are There's a shot of them in the parking garage. They're wheeling their bags with all their gear into the building, even though one guy's still selling his shoulder, he's got his arm and some kind of support or whatever. And suddenly, Officer Bar Brady is there to interview them. How's Kenny? Well, he's pretty banged up. And then the BBC come in, Moxley and Claudio and Useless and Danielson. And they just have a big fight and beat up the buckaroos and use a car to beat them up. They run them into the car and drop them on the car. I guess they had got Demolition the... man. Well, they, they'd gotten the collision damage waiver from Hertz on the car, so they utilized that to the fullest. But So that is that another reason for them to... I don't know. Anyway... Well, they've shown they, now that they can't be confined to a ring for the non-existent matches that they're having without stipulation, so this is a good way to set up the stipulation for the big what-the-hell-do-we-do-with-all-these-guys match. And again, they're, they're ninjas, are the BBC, because they just appear to beat people up within seconds when they were nowhere to be found. Meanwhile, we go back to Wardlow, and that's the, where he does the promo with Rene Moxley Good about the ladder match. And I was thinking at the time, I was thinking, Jesus Christ, if he actually had a match with Christian Cage, I bet you Wardlow could learn something he would probably become a better worker by having a 15-minute match on a big show with Christian Cage. And instead, they're going to have a ladder match where Christian takes a chance on getting hurt against a big green meathead, and Wardlow ain't going to learn dick because it's a ladder match. And then we got our yeah. friend... Po go, go ahead. Very famous for his participation in ladder matches, Christian. Also coming off a series of injuries, or at least one big injury that kept him off TV for a while. Why not have him return in a ladder match? Because he's fucking 50. 
I'm being facetious. Well, I know, but, uh, and again, yes, Christian did a lot of good shit in ladder matches long ago, but Wardlow doesn't need to have any ladder matches, so he doesn't need to learn anything there. And now we're in the back again with pockets. We can't go 10 minutes without seeing him. And uh, he said, well, if anybody wants a shot at the belt that I've got, the A&P Championship or Intercontinental Tie, whatever the fuck they call it, just go see Tony Khan. And then... Thanks, guys. Yeah. Sammy Guevara had a match with Exodus Prime. And I remember that name. He's been on TV once before. And the bell rang and Sammy hit his finish. One, two, three. So thanks for coming to Exodus Prime. And Sammy did an in-ring promo then, and apparently now he is a full-fledged babyface until the people realize what a dickhead he is again in real life, apparently, because that's what doomed him last time. Notice, notice, though, they don't have his wife with him. Well, that does help. That does help. Are that, Did they get married? Yeah, they got married. That's right. They they had pictures from some tropical place. They're, they're so young. I don't think it was tropical. Uh, was it... Europe or something? I don't know. I don't know. Fancy, tropical. It's all the same to me. Oh, just Someplace. some crazy kids. They're having a good time some with crazy their Crazy kids. Yeah. Anyway, he fired up for this, but again, Sammy Guevara is a good talent and a lot of potential. And the way he's been presented at this stage in his career, he's not a legitimate, Serious challenger for a major company world title. He needs some age, some experience, and a coherent push. And he ha has none of those right now. When you say he needs age, someone pointed this out the last time we talked about the age of everyone. If he's not 30, I think he's close to it. But he looks so young. So when you say he needs age, is it he needs more experience on a national stage with actual... um actually being produced, I guess. I don't know what you yeah, would say. Yeah, yeah, that. Well, that comes under experience. I get with age, he just looks fucking 17. And you could use that face, that slappable face with the, you know, the young look. A heel especially can use that because that's kind of more to Sammy's natural environment. Or a baby face can be lovely and sympathetic but he he he's got to, age means size getting bigger gaining weight fucking getting in a gym out of maybe scruff up like theory did grow some facial hair uh get a couple of wrinkles he just needs to be more taken seriously visually as you know this I'm I'm intimidated by this guy well not being Jericho's bump guy will certainly help at least he's away from uh, the, the Jericho appreciators. All right, FTR is, again, they are in tag team purgatory again because they, they're the most talented team in the world and they're in a company that not only can't even develop serious teams or a serious tag team division, but they can't get out of their own way as far as just doing these ridiculously overcomplicated fucking angles. So Jeff Jarrett, Jay Lethal, Sanjay Dutt, and Zippy the Giant Pinhead are making their entrance. They don't get a halfway down the ramp and FTR is out from behind them 
pushed Zippy off the fucking stage through a table and then get in a big fight with the rest of them. And they fight all around the floor and we're with chairs and the belts and whipping and Jay took a great backdrop on the floor. You don't see that often these days. And they finally, they rolled Jeff in and went for their finish, FTR did. And there's Karen Jarrett suddenly appears and nutshots Cash and Jeff gives the stroke to Dax and Zippy's back from beyond the grave. And he does a double choke slam. And again, there's nobody trying to help. There's nobody running out there to separate this. We don't even know what this is. Were they coming to the ring to wrestle Jeff and his group or to talk? Was there a match scheduled? FTR just a, we got a fight. Constant angles. Every constant segment. angles. That's a good way to put it. What every segment is just people running out and beating each other up and Karen and Angle. They, <laughs> and Karen Angle. Oh, come on now. Um, and then they had two guitars that Sanjay, who still this is supposed to be a serious fight, and he's still jumping around doing comedy. And one guitar has Dax's name, one has Cash's, and then they break both the guitars at the same times over their heads. And the heels celebrate, and their music plays, and they leave. Nobody's called the police. There's no, there's no issue here, just another segment, like all of the others. Give me your thoughts. This was an awful segment, so I wouldn't say it's just a segment like all the others. They have found a way to make me not want to see FTR. And I was even appreciating Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal, you know, because a lot of the matches were tag matches, if not all of them. And some of the stuff they had done on this show earlier this year, I guess. But this feud has been horrible. The angles have been they bad. Haven't had a, they haven't even had a match! They haven't it's had a match. constantly running angles and fucking gaga and bullshit. FTR won back the tag titles, and since that time, Dax had that match with Jeff Jarrett on that show, which was not good. We haven't seen them in a tag team match on TV. They worked the house show we saw, but not on TV. And this is doing them no favors, because Karen Jarrett being introduced into this. I said when Jeff first got there, the last thing people want is the worst thoughts of TNA infiltrating AEW. And when I say I appreciate what Jeff has done, I think Jeff has done a fairly good job in the ring of not being that. You can't push him too hard, but, and you know, he looks ridiculous dressed like fucking Zorro or whatever the fuck when he's <laughs> wearing his black hat and everything. But beyond... It's it's Johnny Trash. Johnny Trash, his, uh, his dad's old neighbor, I guess. But this feud, and San you brought up Sanjay. Sanjay needs to be off that show. For everyone who wants to complain about QT, Sanjay is a million times worse. And whatever this all could have been, in terms of seriousness or people caring, it all would have been helped without Sanjay here. Yes. And uh, let me say, and I'm a fan of Karen's. She gets a ton of heat, and she's got great personality That's in and out needs? of the ring. That's what this no, needs? No, li listen to me. Listen to me for a second. She's got great personality. She gets a ton of heat. She's, she's fucking fabulous. Does not need to be here in this environment right here. 
and not this way. Because again, if there was some coherent angle going on with matches and rematches with stipulations progressing fluidly between FTR and Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal, they would be good tag team matches. They could have good finishes to come back with a stipulation that made sense. And if you did that for a few months and then at some point, Karen Jarrett made the difference and in some fashion to cost FTR the belts or even to cost them some kind of victory without changing the belts or whatever. And then FTR got one of the girls off of the roster that might fit them and you had a rivalry where now the girls are in the corner even build to a six person i can understand that but it's just here's more people in this fucking group who we hardly ever see him wrestle to begin with and now we got sanjay and this useless fucking giant and karen's out now you forget lethal's even there and and jay is hidden in the who are they ought to be concentrating on for the future because he's the only one that conceivably in five years could be a fucking top guy for them and they're doing nothing to fucking help that along. Everybody else in this group will either be fucking on AARP or goddamn gone. No, this sucks. This sucks so fucking bad and everyone knows it. And I just want something to be done with FTR that I could enjoy. Give them a team they could work their matches with. They got overworking matches. We don't see them work matches anymore. You always thought, what would they be if they could work their kind of matches and also do really hot angles and good promos? Well, this feud is going the other way. This has been bad. And it also dragged Mark Briscoe down. Now I don't want to see him. Yeah. I know if I do see him, it's going to be in the mix of this shit. <laughs> They've made me not want to see FTR. They need to get FTR the fuck away from this and find a team, or create a team, or do something, and let FTR work a series of classic matches, and find a way to make it so that there's a reason for it to happen. But this is not it. hi yi yi Well, speaking of something else that is not it and wasn't it, Hikaru Shida and Britt Baker wrestled Tony Storm and Ruby Soho with our friend Soraya in the corner. And they jump-started it before the bell even rang, and in the first 30 seconds, they did some of the phoniest-looking shit I've ever seen in my life. It's like they were in either a bouncy castle or they were in a weightless environment training with NASA. It just... Uh... And I skipped the rest of it. Did I miss anything? The biggest disappointment to me is they changed to Karoshita's music, because I thought she had, like, the best music. But, no. Unless you, like... You know, watching uh, women with wedgies just roll around. You didn't miss anything here. And I don't think anyone really wants to see the outcast the way they're being pushed down everyone's fucking throat. This is not good. They're going to be cast out. No, they're not. That's not the way it works in AEW. Even when you're cast out, just no one calls you. Like, you don't even know. Yeah, yeah when, when you're in AEW, you're just cast poorly. Anyway, moving along. So Renee Moxley Good was in the back again with our friend Pockets. And now she expects us to believe that 20 people went to see Tony Khan to ask for a shot at this fucking clown's belt. So he says he's going to defend in a 21-man blackjack battle royal. Is Tony Khan a, a, a gambling addict also? Everything's 
all about the fucking gambling tie-in, all in, all out, double or nothing, Las Vegas. Is that another problem he has to add to his ever-lengthening list of social maladjustments? Well, Wembley was a gamble. I mean, it paid off, but he does seem like the kind of guy that'll take a big risk. Well, now this is going to be a 21-man blackjack battle royal, and the risk that he's taking is that everybody won't stand up and walk out when they have to look at 20 fucking guys that he couldn't figure out anything else for, having to stooge around for his goddamn favorite wrestler and little pet. Good God, if they ever remake the toy... At least Pockets can take the Richard Pryor fucking spot. Watch him take the belt off MJF. And he didn't even try to make this interesting. He was like, well, so, yeah, I guess I'll just fight them all. No, that's his thing. Oil. That's his thing, and Tony loves it. Yeah. And after and they do MJF Adam Cole, watch him shove Pockets and MJF into a thing. Don't you think that there would be snipers if he tried to actually, in the building, if he tried to present Pockets versus MJF in a serious fashion at a big show for the world title, and people are there that paid good money for something like that. Well, if you're a good billionaire, you got a SWAT team on your side ready to take out the snipers or look for them or snipe them out. Well, You always have to be prepared. Any situation you go into, you need to be prepared for ultimate battle. For sniping. Well, speaking of sniping, I'm going to do some sniping at the next one. Let's talk about the Falls Count Anywhere match between Chris Jericho and Roderick Strong. And another example, not only has have these guys never wrestled before in this company, probably ever, that I think about, but... They're very, Roddy hasn't even had a match except for an eight-man tag. So this is his very first singles match in the company. Him and Jericho falls count anywhere. Having, uh, let me get the good stuff out of the way. Roderick Strong always works as hard as he can. He is aggressive. He's got in great cardio shape, in great physical condition. He's strong as a fucking bull. He's dedicated. He will always be there and do his best. And his work looks great. And I love watching him in matches. But again, he's gone from in NXT. He was an afterthought after the rest of the group left. And now he's in a place where all of his strengths are completely negated because there is no 2012 era ring of honor in ring style to this fucking mess with it was roderick strong eddie edwards davy richards jay lethal those guys have an athletic contest hitting hard in the fucking ring work look good nobody getting fucking hurt no no goddamn tables and chairs and garbage in the fucking ring and now it's uh, he's in goddamn the big budget land of garbage wrestling. And I hate to see it. And the reason why is this, this is the problem with this match. They started in the ring and had a fight and a chop trade, which may have gone on too long. But still, it was back and forth. It was to the floor, but back in. Jericho got to Boston Crab. Roddy got a rope break. In a Falls Count Anywhere match, by the way. They were doing rope breaks. But they were wrestling. It was action. But then as soon as they go to the commercial break, by the time they come back, they're in the fucking bleachers up in the arena. 
And here's the problem with having this kind of Falls Count Anywhere match that they do now. It's not a match. It's an angle. It's an angle for a match that you would sell. They don't... When you have something like this happen, the match gets out of control and the guys end up in the bleachers or some strange location or the concession stand for three or four minutes or five by the time that they get there and they get back and it's memorable. It's exciting. They keep the intensity up, but it's a match or a fight that got out of control and just spilled outside the boundaries. That's an angle. And what you do is you bring it back with a stipulation, either falls count anywhere or a cage match. If you want to go the other way, keep them in the ring or a lumberjack match, keep them in the ring. Or if with the Falls Count Anywhere match, that used to be it, 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 a guy may have won by count out because the other guy couldn't have fucking got back in. Well, I could have beat him out there. Well, now the Falls are going to count even if it's around ringside out on the floor. They'll count in the ring, out on the floor, even on the announcer's table. And then the fucking babyface could even say, well, I don't care if it's in the women's room. But then when we got a fucking budget in the 80s and especially in the 90s, and instead of being in territories where you wouldn't see shit like this, but once every couple of years, they started doing it on national TV and you could go to the fucking women's room and they did. And then they started going ridiculous lengths to just do this all over the building and started setting up places to perform in. And fake, instead of fake merch stands, fake merch stands. And when you do this for 10 or 15 minutes, it becomes guys fake walk fighting from place to place doing pre-planned stunts. You lose the intensity. You give people multiple opportunities to see through stuff. You've got cameras placed everywhere, even outside the front door. It, it, it becomes a fight parody. The fucking security is holding fans back in various places so that they have a, a, a good, clear place to fight. And as we mentioned last week, we were talking about it. Well, they, they not only set up a Falls Count Anywhere match, but then ban all of these seconds and stooges from the building. So that means they're going to end up outside the building and some of the Seconds are going to interfere. And that's when instead of the heels here, it was the baby faces. Adam Cole was waiting for Jericho out, outside the front door. And they super kicked him and Roddy pinned him and left him laying in the fucking landscaping. But it, this isn't... I mean, it, the angles that you saw that they are stealing all this from that were first done in the territory days and then later in the first rounds of national TV in the attitude era had airs and auras of legitimate violence and chaos and mayhem and injury and vehemence and anguish or whatever the fuck it is. This is just people going around doing stunts and shit and doing cute shit to get shots of, oh, there's the heel now. He's laying in the landscaping. It, And it's so long. You, That's the thing. You never had matches like this because 
what this is is an angle. Three minutes of it is an angle, and then sell them a great match that mostly stays in the fucking ring. When you got 15 minutes of this, it's just overkill again on this program where they've had already at angle after angle after angle. Your thoughts? Well, that's the thing. The first thing on the show was the Wardlow angle to set up a ladder match. We had the Bucks and the BCC brawling in the parking lot. We had Pockets set up a battle royal. We had the FTR Jarrett and crew angle. I have to think, considering everyone else gets a gimmick match, these guys have actually done bad angles. It has to be set up a gimmick match, not a regular match. And then this Falls Can Anywhere match. Roddy Strong looked in, to be in good shape. And remember, he was looking old and like he'd given up the last few times we saw him in NXT, and he's revitalized now. You know, I kind of remember when these kind of matches first really started becoming a thing in the 90s with tape trading. There was the one at the Clash of the Champions with Cactus Jack and Van Hammer. And there was a time where every time you saw a really good brawl, it wasn't Brody and Abdullah walking around. Yeah. Mongolian Stomper and Kevin Sullivan in Smoky Mountain. I remember seeing fan footage of that. That they they lit that up because they they didn't go long, they went violently. And it wasn't seen. That's the other thing. You watch this now, it doesn't even stand out or stand apart from other Falls Count Anywhere matches. Why? Because Jericho ended up in the mud like a pig? No, that's not it. So it just seemed like another... Silly! Silly! How many times have we seen Jericho brawl through the arena in AEW? At a certain point, you just lose any... I guess you just become immune to it. Yeah. So to me, it didn't really stand out. They got the moment they wanted, which was Adam Cole looking tough behind Jericho and then leading into the finish there. But this is the first solo match we've seen of Roddy Strong on this show. Coming out of it, you don't even think about him. It's all about Adam Cole and Jericho. Well, yeah, and Roddy, Roderick Strong beat Chris Jericho in his debut singles match in AEW, but the thing is all about Adam Cole and Jericho laying in the fucking mulch. Hey, where are all those Jericho fans that were yelling at us at how we made Action Andretti several months ago? Action Andretti! Where's he? Jericho made him. He's an flying instant star. With, flying around the world with Amelia Earhart. <laughs> Maybe he's going to Fozfest. I, I'd forgotten about Action Andretti. Jericho made him. Oh my God, Jericho let some unknown guy beat him in a long competitive match. Great. How did it help him? Where is he? <laughs> Roddy Strong well, just beat Jericho. It means nothing to Roddy Strong. <laughs> it's all about Adam Cole and Jericho. And, uh, you know, I think they're setting up Adam Cole for bigger things beyond Jericho right now. So we'll see how much longer this goes. I hope there are bigger things beyond Jericho, but... The Milky you know, Way? Oh, go ahead. You, well, you know, we're, we're not talking about his ego, just... But, you know, at this point, I'm seeing Jericho stretched out there in the landscaping, amongst the ferns and the gladiolas and the, the snapdragons. Snapdragons? And, well, yeah, all, you know, all those plants there. It was, it was a tropical area there. And I'm thinking he looks awfully comfortable. Even though he's laying in mulch, which is really basically rotten wood and festered dirt that has a high element of cattle byproduct and methane gas in it. But he looked comfortable. 
He didn't look quite as comfortable, though, as you will look, ladies and gentlemen, when you lay down, instead of being knocked out, when you lay down purposefully and with malice aforethought and intent to do it on your Helix Sleep mattress. Now, don't you think, Brian, if there'd have been a Helix display out front of that arena when they busted out the front doors in that Falls Count Anywhere match and... Boom, old Chris Jericho got bombarded with those super kicks and those knee lifts and all those things he got hit with. If he could have fallen down on one of the many, of the many, I'm talking about six different mattress models in the Helix Elite Collection alone, the many models of Helix mattresses, if he could have plopped down on one of those, he would have looked much more comfortable. Don't you think? Do I think he'd be more comfortable in the Helix mattress than he was in the mud? Yes, yes absolutely. Yes. And also, or the, the dirt. Helix... Excuse me, it wasn't necessarily mud. Well, it, it was mulch. Actually, you got to, you know, because hey, that's a professional arena. There, they don't just put potting soil in those. What goes in the mulch? What goes in the mulch? Mulch is is rotten, chopped up wood. That is. Oh, that's why it smells so good. Ar- that's why it smells like shit, and it's spread around plants and trees to hold water and nutrients and make sure that uh, those plants and trees grow healthy. It's kind of like a compost situation. And folks, that's exactly the same thing that Helix, the same viewpoint that they take toward their mattresses. And now... (laughs) How so, Jim? Well, there's no rotten wood, mulch, or shit inside the Helix Sleep mattress. No, although they are American-made. So anything that's in that thing, and if you want to cut it open and see for yourself, do that at your own risk. But anything in there comes from America. That's right. But not only that, but the Helix mattress, unlike mulch and rot and compost and dirt, it doesn't get your kids dirty because they got a kid's mattress. Now, the kids may get the mattress dirty, but that's up to you and your parenting skills. But the Helix Elite Collection comes with a Six different mattress models, each tailored for specific sleep positions and firmness preferences. And every Helix Elite mattress comes with a 15-year manufacturer warranty and the same 100-night trial as the rest of Helix's fine mattresses. Because you know they got all of these. We've talked about the kids' mattress. They got the award-winning Lux Collection. 20 of them unique in all. They got the big and tall mattress. You don't have to be fat or tall. The mattress is big and tall. But if you're fat and tall, well, that works also. So, again, folks, you're going to be more comfortable than if you were sleeping out in your garden on your mulch or in possibly just a muddy area where an arena water, garden. In a window garden. If you're, if you're used to taking naps in the summertime, if people in the Northeast, they don't have air conditioning, they may sleep on their fire escape or in their window garden after that match can chris jericho technically say that roddy strong beat him in the garden he's he actually can yes and actually if you take your helix mattress when it arrives delivered straight to your door and under warranty and if you take it out in your garden and just unbox it there and just sleep in it there then you can say that you once slept in the garden Or potentially, you might even be buried in the garden if this thing goes on any longer. So right now, folks, Uh see what all the fuss is about with these Helix mattresses. They're great. They've been awarded the number one mattress pick by GQ and Wired Magazine 
recommended by multiple leading chiropodists, or is that chiropractors? Chiropractors. Chiropractors. The doctors of sleep medicine think that this is a go-to solution for improving your sleep. The Helix mattresses. The doctors of sleep medicine. Doctors of sleep medicine. That apparently is, I think they're in, where is that? Beaver Bend, Oregon. Doctors of Sleep Medicine Institute. Elm Street. Uh, On the corner of Broadway. And folks, they got models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief. Because let's say it's the pressure you wake up with every morning. It's a heaviness. It's raining down on you. You wake up, you open your eyes, you just say, hi, heaviness. It's going to be a shitty day today. Well, pressure will be relieved off of you with the memory foam layers. And there's also models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. So your body is going to be cradled like you're in the hands of your your dear old mother or even your dear old grandma. Grammy, Grammy, how I miss you, my Grammy. Like she used to cradle your baby's body when you were buck naked the day you were born, this Helix sleep mattress will cradle your body now that you're you're going to be buck naked, but you're an ugly, wrinkled adult. And folks, right now, besides the cradling and the firmnessing and the stress relief and even a happy ending every once in a while, Helix is offering 20% off all their mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners because you're special people. Go to helixsleep.com. That's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash J-C-E right now to get up to 20 per, get 20% off, not up to, but the whole God dang thing. 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners right now at helixsleep.com slash J-C-E. That's right. Helix Sleep. But we got to wake up and go back to dynamite. Wake up and go back to sleep. But what better way to wake someone up from sleep than some fresh dynamite right under their bed? <sighs> well, this this next match was certainly fresh because I got a real good whiff of it. And I'm going to say this right now. This is it. This is not even part of the the normal hyperbolic entertainment part of the programming here on the experience. This was one of the worst matches I have ever seen on wrestling television. And I'm going to tell you exactly why. And I can't believe that it went on. If there are, and I know they have agents and producers, including some well-respected veterans. I believe we've heard Jerry Lynn is there. Pat Buck's around, right? If they have producers or agents, this fucking guy that I'm about to tell you about didn't listen to any of them. If this was the match that was planned, whoever planned it should be fired. If this was not the match that was planned, and I can't believe it is, and with 40-something years' experience in the wrestling business, I'm pretty sure that nobody wanted this match to happen this way, then Rush ought to be fired. But if anybody wants to go back and look at this now from the viewpoint of me telling you that if this match had happened 30 years ago, 
it would have instigated a fight, either a shoot fight in the middle of the ring or a shoot fight in the locker room immediately after it was over with amongst the participants. And I can't believe that even in this company of modern thinking individuals, that anybody was happy in the back when they saw this on the monitor. This was the most egregious example I've ever seen of a motherfucker taking advantage of a guy who doesn't know any better and couldn't do anything about it if he did. And that person was Jungle Boy. Look, if I could stop you before you get to the review, do you think Jungle Boy deserves any of the blame here? No. No. I think that Rush is a complete idiot. I think he is convinced that he is somehow a star, and whether he is in Mexico or not, he has not been presented that way here. I think that furthermore, he is an unprofessional prick. I think that if, as I said 30 years ago, if this match happened, he would have got the shit kicked out of him either in the ring or in the locker room by the guy he was doing it to. But as I said, it's Jungle Boy. And while I don't know that Jungle Boy fully realizes how bad that Rush fucked him like a just a complete bitch here, but let's face it, he wouldn't have been able to do anything about it if he had. Not in the ring or not in the locker room afterwards. Because <laughs> look at Rush and look at Jungle Boy. But the fact that this guy, was Rush, was not immediately asked to leave the premises and never return again after this fucking display indicates that the veterans in the company have no power and nobody listens to them, and the fucking people that do have the pull don't even know what they're fucking looking at. Rush took a shit on Tony Khan's face right here on his own national television program. Jungle Boy is one of the challengers for the world title in a four-way coming up on pay-per-view. Rush is a nobody. And he kicked the shit out of this kid, not only in a wrestling way, but in a demeaning... He did everything he could but piss in his mouth. He almost broke his neck, it looked like, at one point. Oh, yeah. Um... And here's the thing. The Lucha guys cannot have a match by the rules to begin with. They're on the floor for minutes at a time. They bury the referee. Their matches psychologically are the shits all of them. And that includes Penthouse and Felix and all the rest of them. Because, in the, it, to be honest, in their defense, nobody gives a shit in Mexico. It's complete chaos, and it's a cultural institution, but nobody's looking at the rules down there anymore. And nobody even attempts to make it look like matches anymore. But it doesn't make sense here in this environment. That's why their matches are always mostly the shits to begin with. But having said that, whatever style they were working, whether it was modern or indie or lucha or territory or whatever, Roosh kicked the shit out of this fucking guy for most of this match from the start. And not only that, but acted like it wasn't much trouble to do it. And then they went to the break, and during the picture-in-picture, picture, I was fascinated. I couldn't look away from even that little box. <laughs> he Rush took him out and beat his ass in the arena, over the rail and out in the crowd after the previous match. There was no need after the previous match that ended up in the landscaping out, out front 
for these guys during a commercial break to go out in the arena, but Roosh had job face on. He didn't want to be putting this guy over to begin with, I'm sure. He probably is pissed off that they don't see his brilliance and are not pushing him to the moon. So he decided to go into business for himself, and he's going to do whatever he needs to do to get over. And because the Lucha guys lean that way to begin with, he don't care. And he got juice <laughs> on Jungle Boy. Then he got juice on him. And I'm pretty goddamn sure that that wasn't planned. Because why? With this fucking... So he somehow, while he's rattling him around in the, in the arena, also manages to bust Jungle Boy's head open. Not much. Pap smear level, but he's still bleeding. And Jungle Boy needs some iron in his blood also. Blood that bright red, he needed iron. And also, it was a not a deep cut. The deeper the and cut, aspirin. The, and aspirin. Well, no, the, I'm telling. No, he didn't get juice on purpose. I'm pretty sure. And goddamn, nobody called for this. Because why would you? This fucking unknown fucking Mexican guy getting juice on the goddamn challenger to the world title on a pay per view, which which was back to the whole problem with this thing. But he's bleeding somewhat. And he's getting the shit kicked out of him. Jungle Boy comes out of the corner with a clothesline. And Rush not only no-sold no it, <laughs> didn't even register it, and then scoffed at it and brushed it off with his hand off his chest. And then when finally old Jungle Jack gets the opportunity to fire up, instead of making a good wrestling comeback and bumping this guy around, they sit up on the ropes on the turnbuckles, wobbling around and chopping each other, trying to set up a hurricane rana. So Jungle Boy got his comeback was bleh. Then he gets his snare trap on, and Rush gets to the ropes and foils that. And then they get on the apron. Where was it where he grabbed his dick? I didn't even write down the dick grab because my mouth was open. Jungle Boy's firing up on his fucking guy, and they're staring at each other. I mean, it might have been one of the chop trades, and Rush just reaches down and grabs Jungle Boy's dick. And the announcers were so flummoxed that Taz had to say something like, well, I, there was a, a cup check there, but I don't know where that came from, or something like that. <laughs> so then they get on the apron, and... Rush licks Jungle Boy's blood, wipes the blood off his head and licks his own hand. No sells Jungle Boy's chops and belly to belly overhead threw Jungle Boy off the apron flat to the floor. Because this fucking kid's an idiot. He's going to paralyze himself for this fucking jobber? That was the one that got me to like jump out of my chair and go, ooh, because it was so close. And again, he has a lot of hair, so you don't know when you're watching it happen in real time, how close, but that looked dangerously close. But then, and like I'm saying, nobody cleared this match. If there was an agent that cleared this match, they should be terminated immediately. It had to be Rush going into business for himself. And then after he did that, he poses for the cameras like he's the star, rolls Jungle Boy in and covers him with a foot on his chest and got a two count with a foot on the kid's chest. And then he mauled him some more. 
and then turned around and shoved the referee, and Jungle Boy got a schoolboy one, two, three. That's the way he won. Let me just say this also. The only chance this is not the agent's fault is that if Rush pitched the bitch about doing the job and it had to be done this way, or elsewise he wasn't going to have the match, and Tony Khan said, well, we need to have the match because I booked it, then it's not the agent's fault. If the agent went to Tony Khan and said, well, here's what this no-good low-life piece-of-shit motherfucker wants to do to this kid on television and ahead of your pay-per-view, how bad do you want me to beat him up? And Tony said, no, let him do it. Then that takes the heat off the fucking agent. Otherwise, fuck whoever it may be, even if he's a friend of mine. And then after Jungle Boy schoolboyed him, Rush gets back up and starts back on him to get heat. And this Preston Vance character, gets in the ring with Rush and... How about those punches? He, he made it worse. That, <laughs> it, it's like you told some guy from the fucking parking garage, hey, you want to come in and imitate wrestling moves. The punch, the fakest looking, awkward kicks and blows, and then they're trying to tie a rope around his neck, Jungle Boy, and choke him. And they can't figure out how to... Neither one of them was a Boy Scout, I guess. And then Darby hits the ring, music and everything, and they shut him down immediately. He didn't even get to fucking punch anybody. When the babyface hits the ring, you're supposed to feed him. Bam, he's going to nail you. Bam, he nails you. Bam, he nails the other guy. Boom, he drop kicks that guy, but he's coming up. He turns it. Bam, the elbow, and now the numbers. They just glommed him. One tackle pancake. And they're beating him up. And then here comes Sammy. And then he and they let Darby up. And then he and Darby made a comeback together. Preston Vance is embarrassing. That's that's business killing level awkward, bad, phony shit. Yeah, maybe get QT off TV and have him work with his students on everything. Is he is that a student of QT's? I was led to believe that. I'll double check. I thought he was. Okay, well, in that case, then there's a good reason to fire QT Marshall. If I was Tony Khan, I would fire fucking QT. I'd hire QT's parents so I could fire him for having him that led to that. Um. So anyway, I got mad for Jungle Boy here. I, I was pissed. I wasn't happy. I wasn't laughing. I wasn't going, oh, look what he's doing now. I got hot that somebody could be allowed to get away with doing something like this to a fucking guy in that spot on that big a TV. And I, again, I guarantee you, I bet nobody said a goddamn word to Rush. I would have had his shit laying out in the rain by the time he got back from the ring. Fuck this fucking guy. And that's what I said. If that had been, if this was one of the territories where guys' money depended on how they drew and how they were perceived by the fans, I don't think they would have got out of the ring without having a fight, but there would have been one in the locker room immediately afterwards and people would have already been running to pull it apart before they even got back there. That's how obvious this was. And you can scoff all you want, but I've seen guys, good God, 
the fucking Spivey and Sid beat that fucking guy up in Texas for much less than this. And we were running after him because we knew it was going to happen when it was still happening in the ring. We knew what was going to happen in the locker room. And that wasn't nearly as bad as this. Well, Jim, I have a clarification here. I found an interview or a quote from QT Marshall, or excuse me, from Preston Vance. I started at the Monster Factory in New Jersey in 2015. QT was one of the assistant coaches there. And that's where I met him. He's been my coach since the very first time I ever stepped in the ring. QT was there. This guy has just admitted that he has been in and or around the wrestling business for eight fucking years. And right now, at almost 62 years old with one ACL, another reconstructed, two former hernia surgeries, a bad neck, a bad shoulder, a bad back, and a bad hip, and a fucking bunion. I can work better than Preston Vance, and I goddamn, I will fucking prove that. What? How are you going to prove that? I will prove that if Preston Vance wants to challenge me, I'll go three minutes with anybody and do a better three minutes than fucking oh, him. Come on. I don't think legal will clear that. I'm just saying, I could for three minutes, I could fucking have a better match than Preston Vance as I sit here right now. According to this uh, same quote here, who else was there at the Monster Factory when he was there? Damian Priest, Matt Riddle, and Nick Camarado. Well, boy, in that case, he's he's number five in a four-horse race is Preston Vance. I watched this match the first time on mute because I had other things going on. Then I went back and watched it, and somehow I uh, didn't hear everything on there, obviously. But the first time I watched it was on mute, and I actually thought, wow. They realize that Jungle Boy's really not pulling this off right now. <laughs> They've ma they're making a switch. Tony's doing something. You mentioned, is he a gambler before? He's making a gamble here. I'm going to get Jungle Boy out of this shit. It's not working. Rush, or Roosh, who looks impressive, is twice the size of Jungle Boy, and he's not a big guy. They were having him just kill Jungle Boy here. They're going to put him in that match. But then I watched it with the commentator and realized that wasn't it at all. And the commentators are trying to fucking figure out a way on the fly to explain why the guy that's getting his ass handed to him is in the main event at the pay-per-view and the other guy, we haven't seen wrestle here in six months. We haven't seen this guy at all. He comes out there, he's got his assistant, Preston Vance, who's associated with them. Again, <laughs> we see embarrassing forearms and punches all the time. Omega and Moxley can't do it. Despite how over they are with their fans, they can't do that. But what he did there. Wow, this, I was, yeah, I was this about was to make an insult, and I realized it's actually true. I was going to say, that's Dark Order bad. He was in the fucking Dark Order. He was that. That's right, he was. Well, there you go. This is a whole nother level of dark and bad. But I want to see Rush. I'm ready to see more Roosh. This guy's great. I watched that. I was like, this guy's a star. He's just killing this guy. Well, I would say that uh, MJF could have come out and saved this thing with a promo, but here's... Here's what we got from MJF this week. He's in the back with Rene Moxley Good. And he's pissed off and she asked him a question and he says nothing, slaps the microphone out of her hand and walks off. So he's not happy now that all uh, Sammy and Darby and Jackie are all on the same page and it looks like he's going to be outnumbered and has no, no recourse in this thing. Ricky Starks versus switch hitter Jay White with his manager, Juice Robinson. 
Can I say I'm, something? Yes. I'm not even going to say anything to put Starks over because I feel like that's kind of done. And, and that horse buried. has left the barn. But if I were AEW, and I know Jay White has a reputation and he's really good in the ring and people who whose opinion I trust tell me he's really good and he does good promos and everything. But I almost think Juice is the one that would be a bigger star in the States. I just want to say that. Yes. He's got the it, personality. He's got that voice and he's got that weird looking face and he's got some personality. And I'm so, I'm, I'm not saying Jay White is a bad worker. I'm saying he's the same worker. He looks yes. the same and he works the same as umpteen of these other fucking guys that are all kind of the same age and the same size. And this looked like every other match. Umpteen chops. Half of it takes place on the floor. They do the same things. This wasn't embarrassing like rotten AEW kids wrestling. It, it wasn't, you know, but... But it was fine. After, He's another guy with good cardio that runs to the ropes when he doesn't have to and can hit the same moves that everyone else does. You know, I was looking at emails for the show, for Reggie's Corner, and, and kind of slacked off forgetting to watch this. And then I heard the crowd up, and as they were going into their finish, they were doing some nice shit back and forth, and the people were into it. And then Jay White draws the referee. Juice comes in with a chair. He swung the chair. Starks ducked, and <laughs> Juice wouldn't have hit him with it if he hadn't have ducked. He cleared it over his head, the, the, the up and over deal. And then Starks gets the chair and hits Juice with it. And the referee turns around and says, there is Juice taking the bump from the chair. There is Starks holding the chair. And then Starks gut shots Jay White with the chair while the referee's watching. And then he goes to hit Jay White in the back with the chair. And the referee's like, oh, don't do that. And he does. And he calls for a disqualification. The referee turned around. He saw Starks with a chair whacking Juice Robinson. He sees Starks gut shot fucking Jay White. And then he decides to DQ it when he hits him over the back. And the finish, it just, the finish again was what the finish was, but that was what that was. Yeah. Again, my big takeaways are I was more interested in juice at ringside than it was Jay White in the ring. I think they should do something with him, not have him as someone second or flunky. And I'm very sorry to say it, but I just, I lost a lot of interest in Ricky Starks. They finally did it. When you like someone and the booking never does them right. Eventually, you as a fan lose steam. And that's kind of where I... I know they built this up like a month and a half ago or something, but I didn't really care about this match. On a, ma on a show with all of this, with Falls Count Anywhere and Ladders and Roosh almost murdering Jungle Boy, at this point in the show, it felt like there was no steam left for this. Yeah, well, and also, it's two guys trying to have a match after they've seen... Mass murder, chaos, and international espionage. And I'm I'm with you. Juice, what they probably ought to start now because they've they've already boxed themselves in with Juice being Jay's sidekick. But since Juice is the interesting one and has some personality, they ought to start accentuating that that Juice is the fucking you know, wilder guy. I don't mean wild in terms of crazy psychopath. I'm talking like 
the goofy, wild personality, the irrepressible fellow, and Jay White's got to stick up his ass so the people will like Juice's antics when he's opposing this, or opposite, not on opposite sides, but just the the contrast between Jay White, a guy with a stick up his ass from England or wherever he's at, and Juice Robinson's this wild-ass fucking slime ball, maybe he could be from the woolly swamp or whatever, and you'd get people interested in Juice and his personality, and he can switch Juice babyface, he can beat Jay White and maybe be a fucking star. Jay White's going to be another guy from fucking England, it looks like. Anyway, speaking of another guy from a foreign country, actually, what's the status now with Canada and Great Britain, the United Kingdom? Do, do they still own Canada? Do they have a loose affiliation? Are they speaking? Have they decided to take a timeout? This sounds like a question for uh, Jason Accarado. He's up in are Canada. They, are they seeing other people? Anyway, Don Fallis is from Canada. <laughs> Was that what you were transitioning to? I didn't even yes. know what you were transitioning to. Yes, Don Fallis is from Canada, but not from even the, any of the good parts. He's from Winnipeg, the fucking Kansas City of Canada. Oh, boy. But it was Tony Schiavone in the ring for the main event, which was a promo with Don Fallis, where, why, Don, why? And they started these people kind of doing the Dominic Mysterio thing where they boo poor old uh, fucking Don Fallis out of the building whenever he tries to speak. But the story that they were going for was everything I did for him. Without me, there is no Kenny Omega. That kind of thing, but that's all we really got because then music plays and here comes Kenny. But they got 15 security guys, fake security guys in the aisleway and they all go on alert and he starts fighting them. So yeah, 15 security guys versus Twinkle Toes. I don't think this is going to be a Brock Lesnar situation, but here comes the BBC and they jump Kenny. And again, Moxley. The everything he does is just fake. It's not even contacting anybody. And then finally, after he finished with his fake strikes and everything, he DDT'd Kenny on the ramp. And then the whole BBC gets in the ring and Moxley does the promo. It's a final warning, Kenny. Stay down. We are the elite. We're badass. Dope. Four dopes. You're going to be dope sick. <laughs> Debuting Memorial Day weekend. And then more music played. Like the Lords of Flatbush, but dope. Doper. And the Buckaroos fake limp their way out after they've been beaten up in the back. Why they were here, we don't even know. They weren't booked for a match. And they come out limping, fake limping, with a trash can full of weapons and boards and whatever. So now you got Kenny picking his carcass up off the mat. You've got Maddie and Nikki with a trash can full of bullshit. But the announcers are saying it's still three against four. There's four members of the BBC. But oh, wait, now they play more music. Here comes hangnail Adam Page out wearing an eye patch. He thinks he's John Wayne in True Grit now. Reminds me of Snake Plissken. 
That's not Stallone, but it's still badass. Because it's Kurt Russell when he was fucking Goldie Hawn. What's your voice? I don't know. He wasn't fucking Goldie Hawn yet. They met on the set of Overboard. Was that after Escape from New York? Yes, it was. Well, son of a bitch. (laughs) Anyway, so now you've got the four against four. So Kenny hands hangnail a broom wrapped in barbed wire. Why would there be such a thing existing in the world? Why would you have that? It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. They go to the ring. What do you want me to do with this barbed wire? Wrap the broom in it. What? Yes. Either what would you like me to do with this barbed wire broom? Well, naturally, sweep. Well, what's the barbed wire for in case you get stuck in the snow? It'll provide traction. They they, if they go to Canada, they'll have a snow chain match where you got to wrap snow chains around your opponent so he doesn't get mired down in the slush. (laughs) So anyway, they have a short, sloppy fight, and then Hangnail made the challenge for double or nothing. What do they call it? Anarchy in the arena, or whatever. It's going to be a a eight man garbage match where they're going to fight all over the building after they've just done it on this free television show for 15 fucking minutes in multiple matches, but now they want us to pay for it to see more of it. That's totally different. On this show, it was two guys fighting, and you got the focus on them doing their thing. On that other one, it'll be at least eight people all over the place. You won't know what to focus on. You know what I need to focus on, Brian? What's that? I'll tell you what I need to focus on. I need to focus on figuring out something to put in between my eyeballs and the anarchy in the arena match so that I don't have to look at it because it'll make me sick to my stomach and I will vomit up my toenails. How about an eye patch? How about an eye patch? Not an eye patch because, see, the problem is you got one good eye. If you got one eye patch on, you still got one unobstructed eye. I need something to soften the ugly. I need something where I can still see and be aware of my surroundings, but it'll take it'll take the edge off the rottenness of the unobstructed sight of this garbage match they're going to have. I think I need to make it maybe a little shadier. Ah. Maybe just take some of the light out. Maybe if, if so much light wasn't bouncing off the BBC and all the elite boys, then it wouldn't be quite so jarring to the senses. What do you think if I go ahead and put my pair of shady rays on so that I can block out not only the harmful sun's rays, but also the harmful bad wrestling rays? What do you think? I think it's a nice concept. You should try it. I don't know if it could do anything to help with the wrestling. It might take the edge off. But you'll look cool. I'll look cool, too, at the same... And it's kind of like an air freshener over a slaughterhouse. It'll take the edge off. It ain't going to make it smell fresh as a daisy, but it'll take the edge off. But, folks, if you don't have to watch bad wrestling, if you just want to go out, I don't know, in the outside, in the sunshine, well, then Shady Rays are the best thing for you because you don't have to cover up any ugly. You just got to keep the sun out of your eyes, and you got to look good doing it. And that's why... Shady Rays makes high-quality sunglasses that are just as good and even better 
than the expensive hoity-toity brands at a fraction of the price. They're durable, built to tackle all of the adventures you may have. Stylish, timeless, on-point, polarized lenses for crystal clear vision and strong sun protection. And that's exactly what we're needing there because watching the elite against the BBC is kind of like staring into the sun. You're going to burn your corneas out. So put some shady rays in between that to keep your eyeballs functioning properly. And we've talked about this before. And I'm proud to say that so far we have not gotten any feedback that people are taking advantage of this. But Shady Rays, they're good nature. They're compassionate. They're generous. They've got the industry-leading lost and broken replacement program. If you break or lose your pair the second you take them out of the box, they're going to send you a replacement pair, no questions asked. Now, I've, i got to be honest. I'd interrogate you like a Nazi war criminal. If as soon as you opened something that I sent you, you called me or wrote me or emailed me or knocked on my door and said, I lost it already or I broke it already. I want another one. You know what I'd say? I'd say, fuck you. Who the hell do you think you are to come in here and be demanding shit like this? But you know what Shady Rays does? They say, we don't care if you're irresponsible. We don't care if you're potentially criminal minded and you're trying to swerve us around here we're going to send you a replacement pair for free and they give you 30 days to try them out or you can send them back they'll give you your money back you know now that i think about it shady ray needs an agent like me to tell them what's going on because they're way too nice to people you can't trust people in this world like this so before i get the chance to talk to ray and bring him out of the shade and into the sunlight and tell him to stop doing this and giving all of his profits away, you got to go right now to ShadyRays.com slash JCE and use the code JCE. And for a limited time, not only do they have the guarantee, but also if you buy one pair of Shady Rays, you're going to get a second pair free. That means you may very well turn both those pairs in if you break them for replacements. Well, then you might have four or eight or 12. This could get exponentially worse. So right now, folks, before Shady Rays goes out of business, shadyrays.com slash JCE, use the code JCE to get a free second pair of Shady Rays, just as good as the first. Absolutely no charge gratis. You pay nothing. Brian, that way you can put a pair of sunglasses on the front of your head and if you tell your kids you got eyes in the back of your head, wear a pair of sunglasses there too, and they'll be scared of you. I really don't want to scare the kids, but I encourage everyone, check them out. They're fine glasses. We like them here at Last Manor. Shady Rays. But if you scare the kids, they'll be too afraid to misbehave. That doesn't seem like a good idea, and that's not the best way to teach the children right from wrong is to scare how old them. Is, how old is your youngest? My youngest is almost two. If you look her in the eyes and say, It's look, a he. It's a he. Well, if you look him in the eyes and say, look, daddy's got eyes in the back of his head. And I'll show you right now. And you have taken a Sharpie and you've spread your hair out and you've drawn eyeballs on your skull. That kid for the rest of his life is going to remember that he can't even do anything behind your back because you can see him. It'll scare him straight. Yeah, I'm going to do it a different way. But Shady Rays, fine glasses that even my children will wear. In fact, they've already taken my pairs. And yours will take yours too. Shady Rays.
and then you can get more. If you don't want to draw the eyeballs on with a Sharpie, have you tried marbles? Marbles? Just stick marbles back there. That doesn't seem like a good idea. Stick them where? Under your hair. Under my hair? What's going to hold yeah. them? Yeah. Well, glue them to your head. Glue them to my head under my hair. Yes, because then when you pull your hair apart and those kids see those fucking eyeballs out of the back of your head, they'll shit themselves. Why not just get it tattooed on the back of my head? I didn't think you wanted to go that far. I don't. Just I'm, to, I'm just to scare children? Marbles is as far as I'm willing to go. But Shady Rays is something I will always go to as a go-to for sunglasses for me and the family. Shady Rays! Shady Rays! Jim, before we move on and get to the ratings and everything, a couple of notes that you kind of skipped past, which I wanted to mention. <laughs> that angle at the end with the Elite and the BCC, I'm sorry, enough of playing everyone's music when they come out. I get you want that kind of pop, that's like your dream pop, but it happens all the time, so it means nothing. People reacting to wrestlers coming out without the music. Well, especially when, when Darby, he ran so fast, they played like the first four bars. It was like, name that tune. They didn't even have time to pop, and it was over with because they'd shut him down. If I was in the BCC, I would get a fifth member and just have him wait by the music guy. Because <laughs> then you'd know everything that's about to happen. It's so stupid. Uh, secondly, I wanted to bring up... My, my friend's getting a shit kicked out of him. Play my music so I can help. Or even better... My friend's getting killed. Play anyone's music because they'll stop beating him up to look to see who's going to come. But no one comes. You can fuck with people all sorts of ways. The commentary on Dynamite, which regularly is spectacularly awful. Excalibur, who's incompetent as a lead play-by-play -play man, and Tony Schiavone, who is the David Crockett of this generation. Oh my, oh my God. What's the saying you... You live long enough, you're the villain or whatever. Tony has become David Crockett. And you're not saying I'm wrong there. They decided or were told to and then decided to take the tone they did. Oh, yeah. To announce superstar Billy Graham's death in the middle of the Jericho-Roddy Strong match while they're like fighting at the concession stand. All of a sudden, it's like, we have a very sad news. Superstar Billy Graham. In the middle of a match? Not this even in the middle of a match. In the middle of a guy getting a pie in the face in a concession stand. This isn't Princess Diana dying, with all due respect to the superstar. This isn't Howard Cosell announcing John Lennon dead in the middle of Monday Night Football. You're not saying they could have waited till the next time they had an on-camera at ringside and spent 30 seconds doing it there. Not even ringside. The next time they do one of those little shots of the three of them chuckling it up at the fucking announcer table, they could have just said, we have some sad news to report. Well, that, that's what I mean. That's what Yeah, I mean. they could have done that instead of all of a sudden drop it in the middle. There are people screaming and there's ice cream flying or whatever the fuck was happening. That's when they decided it would be a good idea to announce that superstar Billy Graham died. That is a stupid decision. Well, they had to get it out there. They didn't want to be scooped. Yeah, really. I flare on Twitter. Well, Jim, did you see the ratings for this week's show? No, I haven't. And I would, uh, we've been on a path for the last several weeks where they are starting lower than they used to, but they're keeping more of their audience. So they're not having the high highs or the low lows. They're kind of just in the mid mid. Is that trend continuing this week or are we seeing a change in pattern? Well, we'll see what you think of this. The average rating for AEW Dynamite on May 17th 
was 814,000 viewers. Ouch, okay, that's in the 800s that they've been doing, but the lower range of them. Uh, there was some strong competition. The NBA playoffs were, actually the finals are on TNT. Also, Vanderpump Rules, which is a big hit. What the, f who? Who is Vanderpump? I know, that's who what I keep is, asking Who is myself. Vanderpump and what are his rules? Is this a sporting show? Is this, what is this show about? And who's this guy, Vanderpump? I have no idea. Why, why has he made his own rules? Holy shit, you want to hear something else that's pretty funny? I'm looking at this. I got, these were compiled by WrestleNomics, by the way. Are they, in the, are they in the Vanderpump business, too? Dynamite did worse than the premiere of Rich and Shameless featuring Hulk Hogan and Gawker on TNT, which had 854,000 viewers. Ooch. So they lost to Hulk Hogan on this night. And, and now were they opposite or it was at a different time? Uh, it says they were also outranked by the Hulk Hogan Gawker premiere. But that was on like 11 o'clock at night. Okay, so maybe I'm, wrong. maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe I'm wrong. So more people at 11 o'clock at night, if that's the case, watch that than Dynamite. But let's go to the ratings here. See what story they tell. Segment one, 8 to 8.15 p.m. The Wardlow Christian Cage Luchasaurus promo and angle. Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy versus Big Bill and Lee Moriarty with picture in picture. 908 thousand viewers okay and that's not uh that's not showing a good sign considering their average for what's going to happen from here but go ahead segment two the continuation of darby allen and orange cassidy versus big bill and lee moriarty as well as the young bucks blackpool combat club backstage angle and wardlow and arn anderson's backstage promo we didn't even talk about that well we did that's where he challenged them to the ladder match as Arn well, said nothing of interest. As well as Sammy Guevara versus Optimus Prime, 876,000 viewers. Okay, so there went 32,000 in the first 15 minutes. Again, strong competition, of course. Segment three. Well, what would, what would you have to have to not be strong competition to Big Bill and Lee Moriarty against Pockets and fucking Pussy, his partner? I don't know who these people let me are. stop the ratings real quick you and i both have no awareness of the show i see some of the names of the people on it in the new york post every now and then but i don't know anything about it what do you think vanderpump rules is i've just told you i have no idea who this guy is or what his rules are or what his occupation is or what the whole concept of this thing's about all right, well, that was the competition for this segment three. I thought you were going to tell me. I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. I can look that up after I get the ratings here. Well, we got to do the ratings. Segment three, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m. Sammy Guevara's live promo, as well as the FTR, Jeff Jarrett, Jay Lethal, Sanjay Dutt, Satnam Singh, Karen Jarrett angle, Darby Allen's promo, and the start of Ruby Soho and Tony Storm versus Akara Shida and Britt Baker. 832,000 viewers. Ouch. Okay, now we've bled another 44,000, so that means we're down 76,000 from the start of the program. But again, Vanderpump may have been just ruling all over the place by this point in time. We don't know. Segment 4, 8.45 to 9 p.m., the continuation of Soho and Storm versus Sheeta and Baker with picture-in-picture, picture, Orange Cassidy's promo, Tony Khan's big announcement, 762,000 viewers. Jesus H. Christ on a cracker. 
so that's another 38, 68, 70,000 people bringing the total in the first hour. They started at 9.08 and ended at 7.62. That is 146,000 people they lost in an hour. Hey, listen, that segment, I'm sorry. The women's match, Orange Cassidy, who, if you're not already an Orange Cassidy fan, you're sick of him, and Tony Khan's announcement, which the first one, I popped a number. And since that time, he's on almost every week making an announcement. That's why you have that number there for that quarter. But coming out of that, the big nine o'clock hour, segment five. It's got to go up. Roddy Strong versus Chris Jericho falls count anywhere with Picture in Picture and Adam Cole. 816,000 viewers. Okay, so they got 30, 40, 54,000 back of the 146,000 they're down. Segment five. No, segment six, excuse six. me. Roosh versus Jack Perry <sighs> with picture in picture and the post-match angle with Sammy Guevara, Darby Allen, Preston Vance, and the assistant guy. 799,000 viewers. Boy, they should have wished that suddenly they had a blackout on the East Coast on that segment, but they're down again another 17. Segment 7, 9.30 to 9.45 p.m., MJF's promo, as well as Jay White versus Ricky Starks with picture-in-picture, 753,000 viewers. Jesus! So that's another... 46, I got to work, work on my math, 46,000 they've lost. So, good Lord. Uh, again, now they're in the worst spot they've been. They're down 155,000 people from the start of the program. And finally, segment eight, 9.45 to 10 p.m., the continuation of Jay White versus Ricky Starks, Don Callis' live promo, and the angle with the Elite and Blackpool Combat Club and the return of Hangman Adam Page, 769,000 viewers. So, 16,000 back at the end. So, they started at 9.08 and finished at 7.69. That's a total attrition from start to finish of 139,000 people. Can I say something else? For everyone, I want to get your opinion on this. For everyone who's talking about the strong competition, and again, not to take anything away from the NBA Finals or whatever's happening in the world of Vanderpump, but they did a big angle last week. They did a pretty big angle. We're going to finally get some answers, we would think, from Don Callis here after that big angle last week. They couldn't pop anything for that? They couldn't get someone who just wanted to see some resolution? Well, I think it's it's how hard do you need to make somebody to work to to get there after what they had previously seen? They're like, well, you know, I don't care as much as I did at the start of this thing. They're gonna sit around and you know and just wait through this. Is the idea that wrestling can never beat or never do a better number on a night where there's an NBA Finals or a Vanderpump, or if it was something the audience was really captivated with, would they say, you know what, I got to tune out and check out that other thing for 15 minutes? That's the thing, no one, there was no audience that was like, I gotta hear what Don Callis says after that turn. I don't, you know, again, from years back, the wrestling fans watched the wrestling program if there was goddamn chaos going on outside their home and fires in the streets, they didn't miss the wrestling show. 
because they wanted to see it. They had to see it. And that's not the case anymore because it all looks the same. And if you didn't see somebody drawn and quartered and eviscerated and they're fat sold for soap in seg six, you'll see it again in seg nine or next week, they'll do it again. So I think we've just, you know, now that nobody's really, the people that are there for anything are paying the close attention and everybody else is like, what the fuck's going on here? I don't know, but uh, again, that's, you know, when you make something so forgettable and disposable, people don't care that much anymore. Well, that was dynamite, and I don't care that much anymore. Speaking of, of not caring, would you like to move on across the street to SmackDown? <laughs> no, I, I really wouldn't. Can we talk about more animal deaths or something? No, no, we'll gloss through SmackDown so we can get to superstar Billy Graham. Not to say he's an animal death, but you know what I mean. But with SmackDown again, at least that was the show a few weeks ago. While the first few months of the year, we were saying, well, it's only two hours. It's easier to get through than Raw and the bloodline thing. And, you know, and now... <sighs> We got we got a lot more talking. They're trying to talk us into all of this, but I, I think they've think they've gone too far, as uh, the old saying goes. But they started out. We're still not sure who's on whose side in the bloodline. They started out with Roman and Solo and Heyman going to the ring for an interview, and as soon as Roman says "acknowledge me," here comes Owens' music. And he comes out in the entrance way, and then Sammy's music, and he comes out. And I, I would say this is ridiculous. Pick a song and stick to it. But I like the, this because at some point, Owens needs to switch heel on Sammy Zayn. And when they play his music, he gets a pop. He comes out. But when they play Sammy's music, he gets a bigger pop. And he's more popular. So wherever they're going with this right now, if they keep doing that... It'll be nice for the future. Otherwise, pick a fucking song. But anyway, and as usual, Owens wants to fight right away, and I will give it to him that somehow, how has Kevin Steen been able to, the, the state of him, the look of him, the person of him, been able to convince people that he's a prize fighter and a badass? I'm not saying he can't work. I'm not saying he can't talk. I never have. He doesn't look like fucking Haku. And he's probably been in, I would think, single-digit number of real fights in his life. But he and, and look at him. But he's made people somehow believe that he's a prize fighter. Well, they call him that. Exactly. I never understood why. Again, nothing to, not to take anything away from whatever he could do in a real fight, but... A prize fighter is a specific kind of person, not just anyone who fights. Fight Owens, fight. It's all about fighting, fighting. <sighs> but anyway, um, they have the interaction, but Roman wants to talk to Sammy because Roman says he's only got one regret, wasting his life on Sammy Zane. And Sammy says, well, I regret not hitting you with a chair sooner. And I've dreamed about telling you off for months, and now at the Night of Champions, you're not going to get these tag team title because you're not as good as us, and you're not as good as the Usos either. 
And boy, howdy, Roman, he winds up and he's a, he, let me tell you something. He is about to go off verbally and vent his spleen on Sami Zayn. And the Usos hit the ring from behind and jump Owens and Sami and beat him up and chuck him out of the ring and celebrate about doing it. And Roman is pissed. I didn't call that. That's not my play. I didn't say, what the fuck? And as he turns, he's going to walk off and leave him. He turns around and bumps into Solo. So we get the dramatic look there. And then Romans, Romans, Roman walks out on him. And that's the end of that segment. But did you, did you notice one thing about the way that transpired, Brian, that would have never happened in the days where guys actually cared how they came off to the fans and their, and as I said before in the show, their money depended on it and they didn't want to be made look like idiots. What happened here? I, uh, you're so used to it by now. It's, it's nothing unusual, but I just, it was glaring here. Tell me where'd Kevin and Sammy go. <laughs> I don't know. Literally, the Usos hit the ring. They're the tag team champions. They fucking roughed them up and hit them with a couple fucking moves. They take bumps out on the floor, and then the Usos and Roman have their interaction, and Roman and Solo has their interaction, and the announcers pitch to the break. You didn't even get a camera shot of these two guys laying on the floor unconscious. But and and. <laughs> And if so, what did they do? Did they just let the heels leave and then they get up in front of 15,000 people in the arena and limp out like a bunch of limp dick losers? You always called, if you were doing an angle in the old days, for a graceful exit for the baby faces. Not only for the television audience, but also for the fucking people, even if they're being helped out by someone. You see where they went. They didn't just take their ass kicking like pussies and fucking disappear because they didn't want to get back up and fight the fucking guys. It just beat their ass. Now, does it make sense why that don't make sense? Yes, it does. There you go. I said it the other day. I said it's Sammy and Owens need to do something because they've become afterthoughts in this whole bloodline thing. And this is a perfect example of that. Either that or they just said, well, we can't whip those guys. So we'll slink out while they're not noticing us. But right after they came back from the commercial break, there's Roman in the back in the bloodline lounge or whatever. And the Usos are trying to explain and Roman chewed them out. I had something to say to this guy. I didn't call this plant, blah, blah. He did a great job yelling at them and, you know, basically chastening them and then kicked them out, said, get out of here, get out of here. So there's trouble in paradise there. Did you see the debut of Pretty Deadly? <laughs> you know what? I was conflicted here because I want there to be tag team wrestling. So I said, let me try to check this out. <laughs> and immediately I was like, what the fuck is this? I remember seeing them briefly in NXT, but... I, I watched this for a little bit. This is this is not for me. This is I don't know what this is. Okay, for the folks who were lucky enough not to see this, it was Ridge Holland and their little pal Butch of the Brawling Brutes against the debut of Pretty Deadly, and they did a VTR promo with Pretty Deadly before they came out. 
They were in chef's hats cooking the recipe for their team, the delicious Pretty Deadly. And based on this promo and the way that they talk and the way that they dress, I will now make a blanket statement that I will never watch any of their matches or interviews ever again. Yeah, what is that? <sighs> what is what? I, I don't know. I can't. I, I don't even want to try. I don't even want to try to figure out what the audience for this might be or why anybody thinks this is a good idea. See, this is why I think we should check out NXT one of these weeks just to see what's going on because so many people that were there when we stopped watching are now no longer there or called up. So they'll be on these shows instead of the show we stopped watching. Well, then that, that actually that makes some sense there. Good thin in there, Brian. And I, I'd be ready to start as soon as next week not watching any of these programs. Anyway, uh, they did a superstar Billy Graham package with taste and in the right place. And then, of course, we came out with Zelina against Oscar. And I... I sorry. Did I miss anything? That was all right. It was good. I like Asuka as a heel a lot, and I liked her as a babyface, but, you know, she was a heel when she first got there in NXT. Really, really good as a heel, better than as a babyface, more serious. And Zelina has a little bit of momentum coming out of that pay-per-view and the reaction she got. Fine match. And she missed it, Bianca, again. If you stood one of these girls on flat-footed on top of the other one's head, they wouldn't get 10 feet in the air. Oh, are we playing volleyball? What do we need that for? Yeah, do you volleyball play volleyball by standing flat-footed on top of another person's head? Well, maybe their shoulders in the pool, but not the head. Not, I don't stand on someone else. Some of the women may want to stand on my shoulders. Well, whatever, however you give or get head, it's up to you. But anyway. That's not what I meant. At the 9 p.m. hour, this is... I, I forgot, what's the show? SmackDown? It's on Fox <laughs> Network, right? This is indeed SmackDown This is a Fox. network yes. television show. Nine o'clock hour, they're supposed to have, I don't know, Edge or Seth Franklin Rollins or Cena or a star, right? Of any kind. The nine o'clock hour was the Grayson Waller effect. Another cheesy in-ring talk segment with a ridiculous set that looks like a radio station lobby. And Grayson Waller, another one of these NXT fellers, he's Australian. He looks like a 19-year-old science nerd facially, but he dressed like he's on the board of directors of a massage parlor. You know, Crocodile Dundee was on TV all the time years ago, and I don't think I've ever heard as many Australian accents as I have in the last year watching WWE TV. And again, I, I love our friends across the pond. Had a great time in the UK. I've not been to Australia, but I don't have anything against them. Love superstar Bill Dundee as a wrestler. But all these basically bland, normal-looking guys with regular size and regular voices and accents that make them all sound alike do not do any of them any favors because they're all interchangeable. And they all look fucking 12. Um, but anyway, so... I mean, I think I said a couple weeks ago, where's Billy Robinson, Tony Charles, Les Thornton, good God, Marty Jones, Mark Rocco, give me some ugly motherfuckers that look like they stretch people. 
Anyway, Grayson Waller brought out AJ Styles, and I get now AJ is a babyface now, I guess, but he's with Gallows and Anderson, who are about as heelish looking as you can look. But this whole thing was horrible. The fans don't care. AJ was didn't have a lot to say. Grayson Waller is an unknown, and he looked like a clown here in this doctor's office waiting room fucking set with the fake ferns. And nothing happened. Grayson Waller ended up saying that Seth was going to beat AJ for the title at Night of Champions or whatever their double or nothing, whichever big show this is. And they stared at each other. And that was it. Did I miss something? No, the ending was kind of the, in a way, the most surprising part. But when you think about how WWE goes to commercials and stuff, it was the least surprising part. First time we've seen him on this show, I think. Certainly the first time we've seen his talk show set up. AJ, who we, actually, we got a lot of feedback. We should say it here. He's a babyface, not a heel, which we thought he was. Both of us had the same thought. Didn't he used to, last time we saw him, wasn't he? But now he's a babyface, apparently, and we're supposed to know that, even though he's with the Good Brothers and stuff. Did he save some babies from a burning building or drowning kittens or something? Well, he didn't save this segment. This was lame. This was bad. I don't know how this gets this guy over. And there was no ending. What, what happened? Did he just walk out and leave? Who left first? That's what I want to know. I don't even think they showed us. I don't know. I, I... All right, the next match was the Street Sweepers, Dawkins and Ford, against another tag team. Here comes L.A. Knight. And he does a promo in the aisle way, and he, now he is looking for the tag team title, so he's gone out, because he can win the tag belts with anybody, so he's gone out and got him a partner. And here he comes, and it's Booger, Rick Boogs. And this guy has been doing jobs for ever, and they presented him like an idiot. This was no difference here he comes out dressed in pink playing air guitar acting like a moron and they have a match and within two minutes they beat him and then the baby faces leave and la knight picks him up and hits his finish on booger so they're giving la knight now the cactus jack push that we gave to cactus and me and kevin sullivan wcw in 1989 because we didn't have the power to fucking put guys over if Flair didn't want to. So we just fucking let Cactus beat up the other job guys. What the fuck? Why is L.A. Knight in the middle of this? Because they just seemingly don't want to commit to booking him right. And they also and, don't want to let him go. So and the people are still reacting to him when he comes out. They react, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's, it's a rib at this point. They got to do something, though, because, again, people react to him because he's really good. He's good in the ring, great on the mic. But after a while, even those skills, dissip uh, the, yeah. even the reaction you get will dissipate, I should say. Yeah. Because the way you're used. I mean, it's not just this company, but the more people see you treated like a jerk off, the more they're not going to care. You know, if you're uh, sitting around in a park on a park bench... Eyeing little girls with bad intents, no. not running down your nose, greasy fingers smearing your shabby clothes. I'm doing Jethro Tull here, but if you're sitting on a park bench and you're watching the kids playing on the playground, 
and you see this cute little boy, and he's trying to pull himself up on the chin-up thing and get up there to where he can get on the slide or whatever. But he can't quite get up there, but he's trying. He keeps trying. He almost gets it. He goes, he almost gets it another time. He's trying to get up, climb up on. You're rooting for the kid because you're sitting there wasting some time trying to see whether or not he's going to get up on there, and you want to see him do it. But if that kid was to try that for three hours straight, would you sit there through the whole thing to watch to see if he fucking did it finally? Or would you, after a while, get up and go on with your fucking life? Yeah, I think so. I think the latter. Okay. So speaking of going on with our life, so Cameron Grimes doing a promo in the back. And they've combed him and brushed him and trimmed him and groomed him and dressed him. And he looks like a nobody. When he was coming out with hair growing out of his fucking knuckles and the black vest and the fucking black top swamp hat with the snake thing around it and everything. And they didn't have him being so fucking silly and all the to the moon thing. And just when they got ridiculous with him winning a million dollars in the lottery or whatever, he's a gimmick. There's a gimmick in there somewhere and he's a good worker, but they're trying to make him look more palatable. And that is the antithesis of what they ought to be doing. And the whole idea is that when he looked like a shaggy-ass caveman, he looked like shit in a good way. You paid attention. He looked different. And look at the guy doing the shit that he does, and he looks like that. But now he just looks like some fucking guy putting himself through community college waiting tables at a goddamn seafood place. I'll continue on. Uh, Karrion Cross continues to try to be a bad dramatic actor instead of a good wrestler. They had a girls tag team match. I don't know who the fuck they were. They had more girls arguing with each other in the back. Then Austin Theory came out to the ring and did a promo. And he seems to be more comfortable now. He's having more fun. He's got good inflections. He's got delivery. He's progressing even in this somewhat boring environment. And right as I say, okay, I'm enjoying hearing this, and he's a fucking cocky little prickish heel. Seamus's music plays, and he comes out in the gear that he's got, the white top and the suspenders. He looks like a fucking out of, out of Irish garbage man. And he comes in the ring. They don't say anything on the microphone. He goes to they stare at each other. Seamus goes to get a microphone. And when he turns around, he just hits fucking Theory with the brogue kick. His music plays. He drops the microphone and walks back out. So that was the end of that. Captivating. Oh, yeah. And I... I also, here's another thing. The whole idea of the wrestling business since, I don't know, television was invented in 1948 is that the heels get their heat on TV and you have to pay to see the baby faces get even either at the house show or the pay-per-view. In every fucking segment of these shows, the heels, when they start to get a smidge of heat, are then immediately shut down somehow for free on television 
the very next week. It's just like they trade back and forth. You don't, it's not, I pissed on your leg last week, so you get to piss on mine this week. It's I'm the heel and you're the baby face, and I'm going to piss on your leg, and you're going to try to get even, and I'm going to prevent that until the fucking blow off. So Paul tells the Usos that Roman Reigns forgives them, but he will not be out at the ring for their match tonight because he's got too much on his plate. And their match tonight is the Usos against Rey Mysterio and Pablo Escobar, the LWO that they have revived. And so obviously you can kind of see what's going to happen here. Of course, they went two minutes to the break. And when they came back, there was nothing wrong with this match. It's just I zoned out. Again, Rey Mysterio and Escobar have been a team for, what, four weeks? The Usos, it's not a title match anymore. The Usos, you know they're going to get beat here because Roman's still got to be mad at them. The only thing wrong with it from a match standpoint that I saw is I'm about fed up with the Usos looping right uppercut punches with an open hand that you can see a mile away. Have you noticed that? Uh, off the top of my head, no, but I'm sure now that you said it, I certainly will next time. And Roman does the same thing, but he's a little slicker with it. But if every time that the Oost, they're doing the slap with the left hand on the shoulder, but their right hand is wide open, not even loosely closed. If we had video, I would show you about seven different ways you can hold your hand to throw a punch, and this is not one of any of them. But anyway, so the Usos couldn't put Rey Mysterio away, but finally they go for the double splash off the top turnbuckle, but Escobar nails one, and Owens comes down and draws the referee, and Sammy pushes the other Uso off the top, and Rey hits the 619, and Escobar hits the splash off the top, one, two, three, the Usos lose, and Roman Reigns is highly perturbed at that. And that was two hours of SmackDown. I mean, again, on the other program, you don't know what the fuck's going to happen from one second to the other. It's all going to look phony, and it's probably going to make no sense, but at least there's constantly chaos going on. And on the other side of the fence, it's a long schlog to see anything interesting whatsoever. But it's all done professionally, and mostly nobody's getting hurt. All right, another exciting episode of SmackDown. But I'll tell you, Brian, I don't know whether they answered the most pressing question of today on the SmackDown episode or any of the other wrestling programs that we've watched. The most pressing thing that I want to know, Brian, I've got to ask you right now, when you wake up in the morning, sometimes do you do you feel a little green around the gills, as Aunt Lola used to say? Do you do you poop out at parties? Do you stoop and strain? Do you sometimes have the sour belches at odd times during the day? During the day or when I wake up? You started this by asking, do I wake up feeling all of these things? No, then... do you wake up feeling green around the gills? Do you have sour belches at odd points during the day? Do you stoop and strain at various times? You know, back in the old days, what they would do is they'd just throw you a couple of Dr. Proctor's red rectum rockers, say, take this with a glass of water, you'll be fine, and you'd probably be deceased about six weeks later. 
But the thing is, Brian, now that we have the science and the technology, and we've got scientists on this thing and smart people, graduates of major universities, our friends at Seed have given us the inside scoop on how your gut and your gut health can affect your entire life and your entire body. For example, Brian, did you know that the gut and the immune system work together to carefully coordinate our body's response to the world around and within us? An intrinsic connection known as the gut-immune axis. Even before we're born, microbes help set the foundation of our immune system, teaching our body how to distinguish between benign substances and pathogenic antigens, poisonous substances. And this relationship continues to develop throughout our lives until, well, it's just positively a romance between the gut and the immune system, except if you piss your gut off. If you don't take care of your gut, if you make too many trips to White Castle, your gut, Brian, is a vengeful gut. And it will get even. It will bring medieval fire and furor down upon you. If your gut is pissed off at you, look at the number of ways that it can fuck with your life. If your gut's mad, it'll make you shit fire and barbed wire. If your gut's pissed off at you, it'll make you puke your toenails up, projectile vomiting. If your gut is mad at you, it'll reach right up above it Snatch your heart, it's in the vicinity, and pull it right out your asshole. You know, this is not the way any of this, uh, well, I mean, this is just, what? Cra- this is crazy, this is all crazy. Well, no, this, it's crazy to allow this to happen. Your gut is going to get even with you one way or the other unless you take care of your gut. And I'm talking be nice to your gut. Do not forget any of the gut-oriented holidays, cards, fiber, but also with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic, because that takes care of your gut. It, For example, and, and here, the, another thing, the gut controls your skin, Did you skin health. Did you know that? The probiotics and the prebiotics and the organisms and the pathogens and all those things that scientists have discovered over the last few years, they can, it, if your gut decides that it doesn't like your skin, it'll make your skin turn purple and pink and fall off. So uh, what? What? Your skin yes. is going to fall off? Your skin can rot, rot right off your body. You'll just be walking down the street, shedding skin everywhere. Kids will be tripping over it. Pink and purple, rotten skin. Pink and purple, rotten and polka dotted. And polka dotted, really? Because gut health controls your digestive health, your skin health, your heart health. I mentioned the heart before that might fall out your asshole. Well, that must tie into the polka dots, I assume. Exactly, because it models and it, you know, as it rots, it it grows mold and, you know, and then things form and you could be growing mushrooms off your goddamn skin if it rots far enough before it falls off. So the point is with these <laughs> seeds, DS01 Daily Symbiotic, it includes 16 of the 24 strains are specifically geared toward digestive health. And Seeds DS DS01 Daily Symbiotic has four specific probiotic strains that promote healthy skin. See, there you got your digestion, which reinforces healthy stool hydration and ease of evacuation. 
Boy, sometimes my stool is hydrated to the point it looks like a fucking fire hose. But nevertheless, your stool it, itself looks like a fire hose, or well, the, it looks like what would come out of a fire. Hose. The the evacuation is very easy, <laughs> and you have an occasional gastrointestinal discomfort associated with increased intestinal transit time. That means that shit ain't moving quick enough. So boom, it'll speed that shit. It's like a traffic cop for poop. And then you've you've got your heart health, which is going to help maintain your blood cholesterol levels and support healthy intestinal recycling of cholesterol and bile. They recycle everything these days. I don't know why they'd want to recycle your bile. I have plenty of my own. I don't need to have somebody else's, but they will collect your bile and recycle it and give it to the needy that don't have enough bile. And if you're interested in discussing gut barrier integrity, gut immune function, or micronutrient synthesis. And who isn't? And, and it's all over the people's tongues these days, as well as the tips of their fingers, if they don't wipe. Uh, then, you know, you, you got to investigate. Go right now to seed.com, because they'll tell you more about this than I possibly can. I'm just a layman. And I'll tell you another thing. If you take these seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic, it'll get it be easier to get laid. So you can all be laymen. Well, that actually doesn't make any sense, and we can't promise that at all. So don't Well, say it'll that. be if you're laying in a hospital bed with a tube stuck in your navel, sucking out all the poisonous substances of your gut because you didn't take care of your gut health, who's going to want to fuck you? Well, that... That could, that, could possibly, point, that could possibly mean you won't get laid any more than you currently do, but you can't say you're going to get laid more than you do. Well, you ain't going to get laid any less either. So therefore, go right now to seed.com. So therefore, that's the reason why. Therefore, seed.com slash Jim and use the code Jim and you're going to get 30% off your first month of these precious life-giving substances known as D seeds ds01 daily symbiotics seed.com slash jim code jim that's j-i-m for anybody who's listening to this program and doesn't know that and you'll get 30 percent. that's almost like getting it for free it's getting it for 70 percent, which is closer to free than 100 percent. so you're going to get 30 percent off and with a smile on your face seed.com slash jim code jim and don't ha don't be shedding skin around the neighborhood. Try to keep your hair. Don't fucking shit fire and barbed wire. Battery acid, things like that. All these things can happen from an unhappy stomach. Shit fire in barbed wire? Shit fire and, and barbed wire. And barbed wire. Shit fire and barbed wire. Makes a little more sense. Well, what would you why think? You thinking just, why are you thinking of shit and barbed wire? It's like why, well, that, that, that doesn't make any sense at all, Brian. Where's your head at? That's the next Moxley match. We're going to shit in barbed wire. Shit and fire. No, I've, I've just named the next Moxley match. He's shitting fire and barbed wire. They're going to fucking put gasoline up his keister. And they're going to fucking hold a flaming piece of barbed wire. And he's going to try to light one of his farts. It'll be like if Stallone was in Backdraft. Except it's Rocky. Three. Five. Seven. My ring's outside. <clears throat> Where is your ring this week on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, oh, Mr. Last?
My ring shitting through barbed wire with fire. Get all the shows wherever you find your favorite podcast. Of course, information on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes, of course, the wrestling news. Every single day, wake up to a free daily wrestling newscast covering everything that happened in the world of wrestling without opinion, without conjecture. We issue corrections whenever anything gets wrong. Check it out today. Hear wrestling news with integrity. Get it directly from thewrestlingnews.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News. Of course, I want to make mention of Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon. This week, his guest, Pat LaProd, talking about Montreal and his upcoming Dino Bravo book. That should be something. Hear that today at suawpod.com. Or look for Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! Are you doing that intentionally, or? No, I think my batteries died. It's like the hip-hop version of, uh... Maybe the button's stuck. Oh, that one's working fine. It's just... I loosened it up. Your screaming woman is stuck. Uh, well, well, I'll let her out later. Go on. Go through the archives here. Lots of sweet swimming women. Here, lots of screaming women. 605pod.com, wherever you find your favorite podcast, go through the archives of the 605 Super Podcast. A lot of people have been going through the archives. If you're looking for the early episodes and they're not on iTunes, every episode is available for free directly from 605pod.com. The Mothership! Is that the closing bell? Yes, uh, the market was up today. Um, All right. But anyway, yes, and and who who was swimming now? Six people and a woman? These are your words, not mine. I don't know what you're talking no, about. No, those were your exact I, I don't remember never it that way. I, I, well, I, I don't recall that. <clears throat> I'm sure there's some people out there that uh, have looked at the, have listened to the archives and can vouch for me. But anyway, moving along for the main event of the program. Um, obviously it was the news a couple of days ago now that superstar Billy Graham passed away. He was 79 years old. He had, uh, been hospitalized for some time and everybody had, you know, been tweeting about it and his wife had been given updates. And obviously it, it, with all the health issues that he's had over his life over the last, what, 35 years, people got used to you know, well, he's in bad health and then he makes a comeback or whatever, but this one was longer and more severe, I think, than the others. And obviously, you know, he didn't make it this time. But, I, I mean, it's it's what everybody's going to say and already have said. Uh, they did a, a great package on WWE television. And for reasons that we will talk about, the Graham family has been intertwined with the McMahon family for the past what more than 60 years now but uh so it's it's not any new ground i guess brian to say he was at one time the biggest box office attraction in the business he was revolutionary and you know in, inspiring or outright you know uh basically being ripped off by everybody from hulk hogan and dusty Rhodes on down you know at the same time I think a lot of people that, because of the modern video era, 
the younger people may not have seen as much. They've done the retrospectives on the WWE did a DVD and they've had plenty of stuff on the network, but maybe now more people are seeing the stuff from the seventies than have at least checked it out in the modern era because it's, you know, being sent around. But do you tell me, do the modern fans because of the eighties expansion, remember like the, basically the last run what in wwf was 86 87 the hip surgery the whole nine yards there is that what they remember or and they've just heard about the rest or have they what am i trying to say here does everybody know exactly what how the fuck he got to be that big a star that big a draw when all they saw was the end of his career and the crockett stuff in the mid 80s I think it depends on the fan's age. It depends on how much they dive into content. Like you said, if you grew up in the 80s, you saw Kung Fu Billy Graham, which some fans didn't even think was the real Billy Graham. Yeah. And then you got to see him when he got back into the tie-dye, but he was completely immobile. And I think he got hurt in his first WWF match back in 86. And then by 88, he was on commentary. And then that's he, that's and that's know. when they did the the hip, his first hip surgery. And they had footage of it on the show, which that's was right. kind of grisly for that time period of WWF. You know, but it's interesting, though, when they showed on SmackDown, I think it was the package for Billy Graham. They had the Hall of Fame from 2004 with Triple H giving the speech because Triple H grew up a big superstar. Billy Graham fan, New England kid, wanted yeah. to get into bodybuilding. That's what happens. And he said Billy Graham was 20 years ahead of his time. And it's interesting hearing that about someone who, when you really think of it, was actually one of the biggest stars of the 70s. Not like someone who was uncovered years later or someone who no one discovered or like the Velvet Underground, like eight people bought their record, but every one of them started a band. He was actually one of the biggest stars of the decade, but he still felt like he was ahead of his time because of the physique, because of the way of talking, because of the way of interacting with the TV. But he actually was one of the biggest stars of the 70s. Well, he and he actually was only six years ahead of his time. Because if if he had been the superstar Billy Graham of 1978 and 1984, Vince wouldn't have needed Hulk Hogan because he would have already had superstar Graham. So because that was... Well, I said we were going to talk about how the Graham family and the McMahon family were intertwined it's it's kind of ironic that Vince ended up the first favorite wrestler that he ever had as a teenager when he moved from his trailer in North Carolina and finally met Vince Sr., his real father, when he was, what, 15, was Dr. Jerry Graham. And his favorite wrestler, as as he became an announcer, and if he had owned the company at the time that Billy Graham was champion was superstar Billy Graham, the gimmick, the last gimmick brother of Dr. Jerry. And during that period of time, the one that Vince senior did the most business with was neither Jerry nor Billy, but was Eddie. (laughs) And I think it, you know, I think it's fascinating that the Grahams in some way or another, were always figured in with the McMahon family, but if for different reasons and depending on Vince Sr. or Jr. And but that was that was the 
the reason I think why that not only did Dr. Jerry Graham get so many chances with Vince Sr. in the late 50s to through the mid 60s, but then Billy Graham got so many chances with Vince even after he retired. And I mean, because the last 35 years, if Vince Jr. was sending Billy Graham a check, and this is, it's, I'm not burying the guy's public knowledge, then Billy Graham was all for the WWF. And if he wasn't, then Billy Graham was saying these people are all possessed by demons and are, you know, Satan walking the earth. And he legitimately, I guess he got so religious, he legitimately believes in like demon possession being an actual thing that happens. So he, but Vince would always, because it was superstar, he would always take him back just like to a, maybe a lesser extent, Vince Sr., would always take Dr. Jerry back because, well, it's, it's fucking Dr. Jerry Graham. And Eddie was the only one who didn't cause anybody any trouble. Except himself. Well, exactly. But, you know, it's interesting. I found uh, not too long ago in the Wrestling News archives going through the files, in the Superstar Billy Graham file is correspondence from Norm Keitzer to Billy Graham in, I want to say, 79, that, you know, talking about where the relationship was. Again, world champion 77, 78. In 79, Vince McMahon Sr. wouldn't allow Billy Graham to buy advertising space in the programs to advertise his poster. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, that was the thing, is that he melted down over the title loss. And, I mean, if you've read his book, and if anybody out there, if you've read the book, or I think it's still available on Amazon, uh, but he melted down when Vince Sr. took the title off of him while he was still the biggest box office attraction in the business. And think about it, at that time, what were the three highest paying jobs in wrestling in 1978? The NWA champion, unless you were a promoter also or a, a booker of own part of the office. I'm just talking about purely for wrestling. NWA champion, WWF champion, and Andre the Giant, not necessarily in that order. And he was the hit of the New York and the toast of the Northeast. And they were still selling the buildings out. A better Vince, sellout ratio than anyone else in garden history for wrestling. Yes. And not more than Bruno, but a better percentage because, you know, I mean, I don't want to get on side tracks here, but Bruno had a period where there was no TV in New York and blah, blah, blah. But Vince Sr., honored the commitment that he made to put the belt on him, but he honored the commitment he made to take it off of him. Remember, that was the story. He gave him his starting date where he was going to win it and the date he was going to drop it at the same time. And Graham was sure, you know, with business like this, there's no way they're going to take this belt off of him. And they did. And, and that can't be easy, because even if you know you're supposed to lose the title on a specific day a year later, as that year's happening and you're getting bigger and bigger and the sellouts just keep coming and people are paying a lot of money to see anyone beat you. Putsky, Dusty, Mil Moscaris, someone. And then doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how good that year is. It ends at this date. You know, I think even if you weren't Billy Graham, that would probably fuck with most people's minds. Yeah. And the entire Graham family and I have family in quotation marks because they really, only Eddie and Mike were really related, but 
you guys know what we're talking about. They had problems at various points with uh, with substances, whether either alcohol or in Dr. Jerry's case, alcohol and mental illness, Eddie with alcohol and Billy with drugs, um, both the steroids that damaged him, but also he got on drugs as a result of that title loss. And that was where, remember, I, I first saw him in 1979 in person. Because back in those days, uh, he was the hit of the magazine covers, and the pictures were phenomenal. And especially after the After Magazine's a London publishing line, they liked belts, bodies, and blood. And Graham had definitely one in every picture, if not all three. And so he was on the covers, and... You know, but it's the same, and you knew that he was selling out Madison Square Garden, but this was the days before home video. And there was no way, unless you took a trip to the fucking Northeast Territory or the guy came to your territory, you couldn't ever see him. So the only time I'd seen brief glimpses, remember there was a, he had a scene with Wahoo, strap match in The Wrestler in 1974, which was shot in 73 when he was on top for Vern. And, you know, you couldn't really tell much from the movie scene. But then when he finally, when they took the belt off of him, he dropped out of the business for a while and got fucked up mentally and et cetera, et cetera. And then, I mean, as I guess the, the entire instigation of this was Jerry Jarrett was creating the CWA world title because he couldn't get Lawler run with the either the NWA or the AWA title at that point, that he was going to make his own. And he wanted a legitimate world champion level guy to carry it, to give it the credibility. And obviously then it would go to Lawler. And then that's why when Lawler broke his leg after winning it, uh, Jarrett brought Billy Robinson in because it's Billy Robinson. He could be a world champion. But Superstar Graham was the guy. And the problem was, this was, what, uh, fall of 1979. <clears throat> so he'd been out of the business for a year. He hadn't been training hard. He wasn't real tan. I mean, he still had a great body. It was Billy Graham. But also, think about this. He's come to Memphis, and I'm sure... Jared probably made him a day. Billy, you won't make less than 200 bucks a night or whatever it was. But it was nowhere near the money that he'd been making, and even, you know, at the time, if he's in, a, in front of a crowd of five, six, seven thousand people, to him, that was like a spot show. And so, and he was kind of defeated mentally. So he was a nice guy. And, but, you know, we didn't get the best superstar Billy Graham. It's not like he was motivated to tear the fucking house down every night, right? He was working sort of like handsome Jimmy toward the end of the in-ring years. And at the same time, we did the Memphis fans, Tennessee fans didn't have the benefit of having seen him come in and get over in a territory in his in his prime, which was only fucking three years earlier, right? And get to talk every week on TV and the whole the big push, blah, blah, blah. It was just kind of an abrupt thing. So that didn't work, and he was here where he dropped the belt to Lawler in Lexington on, I think, November 8th. Of uh, 
goddamn of 79 i'm sorry and i think by the following january i think he was gone but it was you know it it just it was an example of context and time and place and he had a different style than the tennessee style and it just but at least you know i got to see him at that point do you, and, remember, do you remember the first ahead. time you actually saw him in a magazine? Because there have been impressive physiques before that. I mean, Sailor Art Thomas may have had the most impressive yeah. natural physique ever, but he was another level, especially after he left L.A. If you see those L.A. pictures, he's still kind of big and bulky, but then he got shredded. Do you remember when you first saw him in the magazines? Yes, I do. And well, let, let's go back without going back to I was born a, in a poor a child in a log cabin all the way back. Jerry Graham obviously was the first Graham and we've talked about the Graham brothers and they're going to be an episode of dark side of the ring this season also. And I'm going to be on that because I, I did some research for that a few months back, but he was, you know, mentally ill and an alcoholic and crazy. And he's the one that started the riot in Madison square garden in 57 where I mean, we'll never know the real story. Everybody's dead, but possibly he got juice on Raka when he wasn't supposed to. And potentially also Raka didn't know till after it was over with either. And they had a fucking riot and almost got wrestling banned in the garden, the front page newspapers. We've talked about it. And then he gets his brother, Eddie, who the Grams become you know, one of the biggest drawing heel teams in the history of the business at that point, and they're selling out New York and everywhere. Not real brother, just a... Not real brothers, but he get Eddie Gossett. But Eddie only can take Jerry Graham for a couple of years before he finally, after the, when the run ends, he goes to Florida and ends up the top guy owning the territory, working with Vince Sr. for the next 25 years until Eddie died, or until... 20 years till Vince senior died and they had a close relationship between the Florida and the New York offices. But Jerry then got what crazy Luke and what seven 64. And Eddie even came back to work some six mans to kind of give Luke validity as a grand brother. But that was a case of Vince senior bringing back Dr. Jerry after a few years, let's try it. The Graham brothers again. It's the doctor, and he they flamed. He flamed out quick. But Luke Graham made a living off that gimmick for the next twenty years, just being a Graham brother, being crazy. And believe me, I saw Luke Graham in the seventies and the eighties. Again, nice guy, couldn't work a fucking lick. Awkward as shit, but he had the size, the gimmick, and the fucking promo. And then. The last hurrah for Jerry trying to get back into business, this was after the hospital incident, which is chronicled in Behind the Curtain, my graphic novel, on sale now at jimcornett.com, where he stole his mother's body from the hospital at gunpoint in Arizona and beat up the orderlies and was taken in by the squad of police. He talks the Los Angeles office, Jerry does, into bringing him in because it's Dr. Jerry Graham, right? And he brings in a bodybuilder that is going to be his brother, Billy. And that's had Wayne Coleman had broken in, what, 
six months beforehand in Calgary. Yeah. And they trained him, and he was a bodybuilder. He had been an evangelist and a bodybuilder and did the traveling revival shows when he was like in his early 20s. So he knew show business and had the gift of how gab. To work, how to work people. How to work. Yes, it exactly. And the, the fucking line of the patter, the promo. And then they trained him in Calgary briefly. And then Jerry, because they were both for Jerry Graham was from Arizona also. So he got him booked in Los Angeles as his brother. And I have to think the reason why they chose Billy Graham was because I don't know if people around the world are aware of this. And probably a lot of people in the United States have forgotten now, but the biggest TV preacher in the entire United States was Billy Graham. He was on network TV. He gave, he did the, all the president's funerals and consulted with the high muckety mucks, the Reverend Billy Graham. This, he was a big fucking name. And so if you're going to, if you've been an evangelist and you're going to be a brother of a guy named Graham, why not be Billy? So in a roundabout way to answer the question about when did I first see him in the magazines, and we had to do the background there just so everybody knew the relation. The first magazine cover that I saw of him had to be like, it was a magazine from 1972 or no, 71, but I may have gotten it as a back issue in 72. But it's one of Bill's magazines, Aptors, and the cover is This Billy Graham Preaches Violence. And it's him in the fucking hippie fringe jacket that he used to wear in Los Angeles when he first got started. And that was just, that was cool. You know, oh, the, he's got Billy Graham's name, right? And then Superstar came in, what, 72 from Jesus Christ Superstar when he went to, uh, the first place he did that was AWA working for Vern, right? I think so, yeah. Because he was just, obviously it was, and again in Los Angeles, I don't think Jerry lasted long again before something happened. But Billy was there as a single for a while and then, you know, bopped around a bit and ended up working for Vern Gagne. It is such an interesting move, though, just because, like you said, the Reverend Billy Graham was a pretty big figure in society. To take the name Billy Graham, of all the names you could have picked, to pick that one. Yeah, and there probably was, I would think, some pushback at the time from some people. Like, Wait a minute, can we do that? Because that's how puritanical or whatever it was then. And then again, superstar has a bunch of connotations, but if he'd have come out, if he'd have played the Jesus Christ superstar music, uh, he might've got <laughs> run off television, but he got, he gets his first name from a TV preacher and superstar from the play about Jesus Christ. So he, he was reaching for the stars there. And, and you, and you talk about influence over the McMahons. I could be wrong. I believe WWE still holds the copyright on the term superstar for wrestlers. And Vince McMahon's love of using superstar instead of wrestler yes. really all stems back to Billy Graham. Yeah. And and that's the thing is that, well, before we get to talk about what he influenced Hogan, when he goes to work for Vern, um, Dusty is there also. That's when Dusty was still there as a heel before he went to Florida, right? Yeah. So 
the thing is, Dusty always had the 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 lisp and the the way he spoke. And I'm not saying that he just copied, but at the same time, Tawa Power, Man of the Hour, too sweet to be sour. That's superstar. And and you see all the pictures of Graham went to Florida in the late '70s when Dusty was there, and on top, they the pictures of them with their arm around each other. Pictures of them with their arm around each other. Dusty brought Superstar to Crockett in 85 when he needed a job. It, Dusty, Hogan saw the body, and so did Jesse Ventura. The body and the rap, the promo, the patter. But at the same time, Dusty saw that funky, jivey way of speaking too and made some of it his. I'm not saying everybody just copied Billy Graham outright, although a number more people did. And as this can go to Austin Idol and we can go on and on. But a lot of people took some certain thing from him and, you know, made money with that. It is funny, though, that we recently saw the Dusty Rhodes biography where Hulk Hogan said, I was in the crowd and I saw Dusty Rhodes and I said, that's what I want to be. And now here with the Billy Graham tribute video, it's the same thing. I yeah. was there, I saw Billy Graham, I said, that's what I want to be. Whoever they're interviewing Hogan about, that's who he wanted to be. Well, and remember uh, Flair, when he was starting out in the AWA, when Dusty was there as a heel and Graham was just coming in, he wanted to be rambling Ricky Rhodes and be Dusty's little brother or whatever. But but at the same time, you would you would also see some of superstar in flair and just the way he carried himself as a heel and et cetera. Anyway, the point being when he went to work for Vern, that's where the magazine covers souped up. And also think about this. He breaks in in very early 1970 or late 69, one or the other as a, as a wrestler by what 72, 73, he's working for Vern Gagne in the AWA as a top heel. That's three years in. And he's already 30 years old because he started late. And the thing about Graham, and it fit Vern's territory, because Vern liked wrestling for himself and his opponents, Billy Robinson, Nick Bockwinkle, but he also liked the crazy gimmick guys, Crusher, Mad Dog, Vashon, because that's what got over in the Midwest. And his baby faces and heels, Vern's, were some of the biggest names in the business that had drawn money everywhere, but they were also, there was no young people on the card. Every, you know, Ray Stevens at that point was 40 and Bockwinkle. Um, and they were the bump guys, right? <laughs> so when Graham comes in, he didn't need to take a lot of bumps, which was the only thing he never did, but he had a better body that nobody had seen. And he, it was a territory of promos. And he was a great promo even in that field. And he didn't mind bleeding. And they liked blood in the strap matches with Wahoo or the fucking grudge matches with Crusher or the saloon brawls. And he's got the fucking, the look. And it, so he drew a ton of money there and was one of the guys figured in for Vern for a couple of years. And again, fit right into that big man and or you know, talk them into building, you know, gimmick match kind of territory that, that Vern did. The, that's another contrast with like a Tennessee territory or any, any Graham got over in Florida, but he was not the guy. He was one of an all-star lineup. 
because the Southern territories that ran towns weekly, they expected more in the matches in the arenas, the house shows, more action, more bumps, more whatever. Because whereas in the Midwest and the Northeast, you saw every week on TV, you saw the top guys talking and beating some job guy up. And you only saw him once a month in the building actually having a main event match. In the Southern territories, you saw him in the building every week having a main event match. So they had to gear it up a little bit. But then again, did he, did he go to Texas after Vern? He was down in Texas for a while. Then, yeah. then, then he was doing, at one point, he was doing Florida and the WWF at the same time. That's right. Because again, he was in the WWF, what, a year and a half, two years before he ever got the belt. It wasn't like he just got there and got right. the belt. Yeah, I think um, I think he went from Vern. He had a a, a run on top in Texas, and uh, got to perfect more of that shit. Did did a lot of the arm wrestling challenges, and then it worked for Vince for quite some time. Plus, made shots in Florida, and then when he got the belt, it's another reason people. I guess now maybe nobody talks about this anymore either, but. The war between the NWA and the WWF that Vince Jr. would kick off, the only place besides, I think they did it once in St. Louis, didn't they? But um, no, they did it in Atlanta. The NWA champion versus the WWWF champion took place in Florida. Eddie, one of Eddie Graham's, a couple of Eddie Graham's towns. I think they did race and Graham in the Orange Bowl in Miami. They called it the Super Bowl, didn't they? The, the Super Bowl of wrestling. And of course, they went 60 minutes. Broadway, I think. Which had to be, had to be fun for Harley, because that wasn't fucking Superstar's gig. Um, I think they did one in Atlanta with Backland and uh, Race. 82. No, 82, they did Backland and Flair. Backlund and Flair. I think it was July 4th, 82, and there's no footage of the match out there. And Flair probably burned it. From what uh, I understand, but, it, he may have wanted to. It wasn't a good match, everyone says. Yeah. But, they, but they, did, they did several of those title versus title matches in the Florida Territory, and, uh, and they had a cooperative relationship. And then at the same time, they've just had on the Dusty Biography and also on some of the Superstar clips... That was the big trilogy, you know, in the garden and elsewhere was Dusty versus Graham in 77 for the WWWF title in the WWWF. And Dusty was on loan from Eddie Graham for that. So there was a close working relationship there. But that that's why, you know, again, you look at Billy's career, he breaks in within a couple of years. He's a main event guy in a big territory. He's making money. I don't I don't know if he made a lot of money in Dallas, but he didn't stay there long. He's in the WWF in Florida, both the biggest money geographic territory in the country at the time, and Florida, the home territory of not only some of the top talent, but also one of the most important promoters in the business. And he's being used. And then he wins the WWF championship. And he's and he's the biggest box office attraction in the world. It, or at least in the country. And by 1978, 
he's been in the business eight years. He's done all that. They take the belt off of him and he just, and he, like we talked about earlier, cracks up and just drops out. And remember Gorilla Monsoon in the Philadelphia newspaper where he had a weekly column on wrestling reported that superstar Billy Graham died. Yeah. Died of cancer. And by the way, now I have that newspaper article. It's in the vault. I saw it just the other day when I was looking at some other stuff, but I think that was the year I think that was right after his Memphis run also is, is Gorilla had fucking printed that. And because he did kind of disappear again after the thing in Memphis. But then when he showed up in 82, all of a sudden, I mean, he was losing his hair, but now he's completely bald with a mustache and still in good shape, but a relatively good shape. Well, he's still in good shape. Well, but very different than what he once was. And actually, if you ever see footage of Billy Graham in 1982, he looks like 10 years older than he looked just a few years later. Yes. Well, and see, that's the thing. By the by 1982, there were several things wrong. Number one, he was almost 40 now. So he had still in that in the karate gimmick, Kung Fu Billy Graham, he had the body of a 40-year-old guy that had been a incredible physiqued bodybuilder years earlier. And he still looked good for, you know, I'm not saying I could have fucking beat him in a pose down, but he wasn't the guy that was doing, you know, the pose downs with all the top bodies in the business a few years earlier. But also he's he's never been a guy that did a lot of bumps, took a lot of bumps or had a lot of he wasn't he wasn't a smooth bodybuilder like Ricky Steamboat. Even when Steamboat ripped himself up for competition bodybuilding in the Carolinas at one point, he was still smooth as silk. Whereas Graham was not a smooth bodybuilder worker. It was the the promo and the the action and et cetera, et cetera. So now he's 40 and he's trying to do a karate gimmick because I think he mentioned it again in his book. He wanted to do something different. He had no confidence. He didn't think he thought it was, he had to do something different. I don't know what the fuck, but bald head, black handlebar mustache, black karate gi pants from the once tie-dyed, most colorful superstar in the, in the fucking wrestling business. And Scott Steiner, there you go. My God, that was Scott Steiner in TNA with chainmail was Billy Graham from 30 years earlier. So again, Philadelphia fans read in the newspaper that he died. Then they see him like this. He sounds the same, but he looks radically different. So some fans actually thought it was either a different guy or that the real guy died. Yeah, basically fake Billy Graham. And and Gorilla never would retract the, uh, the deal, but the karate gimmick was horrible anyway. And that's where I'm saying now we're in the video era. And people who are trying to seek out home video that's not on the network that was passed around by the collectors or put on YouTube or whatever, now they're seeing karate kung fu Billy Graham, which was grisly horrible. And then, I guess, was it... Did he go straight from there? Was he out again for a while? But he ended up working for Crockett in late 84, early 85, when Dusty came in as Booker. He was in Florida before that. Okay. Which makes sense because Dusty was booking Florida. Because I read something Sean Waltman put up there, which I thought was interesting because he's someone who actually did get into martial arts and became a big, well, became a big wrestling fan. 
was a wrestling fan and became a wrestler, but that was the first Billy Graham he saw. He never saw the tie-dye Billy Graham. So wow. to him, karate Billy Graham was cool because he never saw the other one. And Oh, boy. You know, it's well, interesting. There are fans like that, that the first version of whatever you see, you think that's great, but if you've never seen the other stuff, what else do you have to judge it on? Well, Kung Fu Billy Graham didn't sell out to Garden 28 fucking times in a row or whatever it was, but... But then, we, to Crockett, to my point of where I was going with this was, that's where I had obviously met him and talked to him as a photographer when he was in Tennessee briefly. I have pictures, et cetera. But now I'm in the locker room with superstar Billy Graham, and when he came back to the Carolinas for Crockett, at least he went back to the tie-dye. And he, like you said, he was losing his hair because now he was... Well, he, he just passed away. He was born in uh, 43, so he was 42 years old now after multiple years of multiple <laughs> steroids and other things. So he lost his hair. He was shaved, but he was jacked up again, and he had the bleach blonde beard um, you know, and, and had the, the do-rag on and the tie-dye, and, and he had the talk and the patter. And so he was back to kind of being superstar Billy Graham and in in Crockett at that point he didn't have to be the guy he was a big star on once again another all-star roster where all the baby faces were popular and all the heels had heat and that you know fit in and we did the thing with the Midnight Express against first it was Jimmy Valiant and Rocky King and Jimmy Valiant was representing the street people and, and, of course, Big Mama's cameo appearance there. Woo, boogie man. Oh, I've looked in bars, I've looked in cars, and here you are. And then Superstar Graham comes to the aid of poor Rocky King, so it's Superstar Billy Graham and Handsome Jimmy Valiant against the Midnight Express. And, of course, Jimmy is my favorite wrestler from 1977 when he came in to work for fucking... Jared and did the program with Lawler. Woo, mercy! And my Mama Cornette was actually named Handsome Jimmy Jr.'s official godmother when he was born, because that was while they were here in his territory. And so that's fun working with Handsome. And then there's superstar Billy Graham, who again six years previously or seven years that had been the biggest fucking star in a business. So, and Bobby and Dennis could take all the bumps because neither one of them were going to take any bumps. But it was fun to have those house show matches. And then I actually, I wrestled. <laughs> Technically, I wrestled superstar Billy Graham because we had a couple of six-man tags at a couple of house shows where it was him and Handsome and Rocky King against me in the midnight. And I believe my, the extent of our interaction was me getting in and choking him while he was down and maybe dropping an elbow. I'm pretty sure because Jimmy was actually at that point, Jimmy was the one of the hottest baby face in the territory. So he always got the tag to make the comeback. Uh, but uh, I've technically wrestled superstar Billy Graham. So there you go. Hey, uh, Kung Fu Billy Graham. Do you remember what his entrance music was? Kung Fu fighting. Kung Fu fighting. <laughs> oh, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> But yeah, again, that was, yeah. And then um, at that point, what it was late 85, early 86, 
that's when he left Crockett. And, uh, you know, honestly, again, I can't say that a lot of people noticed he left Crockett. And it's not to be derogatory, but just because it was loaded, packed, the locker room of stars, and they were bringing in some more. And, you know, Dusty liked Billy, but Billy was not a huge draw on his own in the Carolinas for that run. But that, I believe, was when he it, it convinced Vince Jr. to... And see, again, that's the thing. If Vince Jr. in 1978 had been in the position he was in in 1982, Graham would have never lost the belt. And for that matter, it's not like Vince had a sudden goddamn epiphany between 1978 and 1982. What he wanted to do, if he'd have been running the company four years previously, he would have started trying to expand then. May have been tougher because there wasn't anywhere near as much cable television. But that's the thing, whereas Vince Sr. wanted to go with Backland he didn't like having a heel on top. He wanted an all-American boy after all of the years of the ethnic heroes and the short-term heels. And he promised to go with Bob Backlund, and they still sold out. They still did great business because the company was on fire and they had the biggest towns in the country. So it's not like it hurt their business as much as it destroyed Graham's momentum and or psyche. But that was, whereas Vince Sr. tolerated Jerry Graham starting riots and all the trouble he caused because he drew money, but and he gave him a couple of second chances because of that, Vince Sr. loved Jerry Graham as a personality because he was a teenage kid riding down the fucking streets of Manhattan in a bright red convertible Cadillac with this fucking maniac lighting cigars with $100 bills in 1958. But at the same time, Superstar, the youngest brother, would end up being the prototype 25 years later, right? Or more. Would end up being the... 20 years, whatever. Would end up being the prototype for what Vince McMahon Jr., wanted to feature as the world champion in his plan to take over the world. And in the middle, the longest business relationship was between Vince Sr. and Eddie Graham, who both became two of the most powerful promoters in the business and had a relationship that at some points was even outside the parameters of the NWA. And then, finally, Vince Jr., gets put back in the same position with Billy Graham that Vince Sr. was with Dr. Jerry at one time in that he kept giving Billy Graham second chances and signing him as an ambassador. And, oh, it's the superstar, even though he said I was a demon possessed by the devil and put here well, by Satan himself to fucking, you know, pollute the world. Let's send him a check. That's the thing. He goes back to the WWF. Physically, he's unable to wrestle. They make him a manager for Don Morocco. They make him a commentator, and as good a promo as he was, he was not a good commentator. No. And then at the end of 88, there was that house cleaning, where all of a sudden, I mean, the Bulldogs left for different reasons, but Don Morocco, Ken Patera, Billy Graham, a lot of the guys who were really the stars of 
not the previous generation, but the previous era, I guess you could the say. The previous decade. The previous decade, or guys that were coming into their own at the end of that decade and hit their peak early in the 80s, WWF was letting them go, and then it was 89, where Billy Graham starts going and talking about the dangers of steroids and all the health problems he's having. That's when we first started hearing that Billy Graham was, you know, close to death. It was like yeah. in 1989. But it's interesting just because, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. That's when all the Lyle Alzado stuff came out and he died and steroids were, he got cancer and then he died and everyone attributed it to steroids. Not everyone, but it was attributed to steroids yeah. by many. And we all assumed because of that, because of Billy Graham talking about the issues he's having, that everyone who was a wrestler in the late 80s and early 90s, this was their future. And a lot of guys went too far with different things and paid the price. But by and large, you're not seeing that, which I think is really interesting. You're not seeing what Billy Graham said was going to happen to everyone in 1989, which is, you know, all the wrestlers who took steroids in the 80s ending up physically like he did. Well, there's a reason for that also that sometimes people overlook is that he was taking those steroids in the 60s. And I'm pretty sure they probably refined some of the monkey hormones uh, in that 20-year period. But remember, as I said, he was born in, what, 1943? So when he got in the wrestling business, he was already 27. He was already a bodybuilder. That's where he met Schwarzenegger. And those guys, that early generation of bodybuilders and guys that were on the cover of all the weightlifting magazines, Dave Draper, I remember that um, was just almost cartoonly big in, in those 60s bodybuilding magazines. They were taking shit, that experimental shit, and or they had no frame of reference as to what the dosage might be or cycling on and off or whatever. And Graham was kind of, in, in wrestling, one of the, I'm not going to say the first, but one of the first wave of guys who were doing steroids, and they were more primitive and more unpurified or whatever, and there was no guidebook in a lot of cases to go by for what they were doing. That's why at one point, did, did Graham not get up to within 11 pounds of the world bench press record, not for wrestlers, for anybody? I'm not sure. I think I heard that story at one, at one point in, you know, in his, whether it was the late 60s, early 70s, through the period of his athletic prime and when he was really big. But, you know, I think that's, the guys that were taking the stuff in the 80s, they didn't take it as long. They didn't take the kind of, you know, prehistoric shit. I'm not saying it was good for them, but Graham has literally, he's had hip replacements and and he's, been in and out of the hospital for various issues and replacements and surgeries and everything since, like you said, almost 35 years. And that has to be playing somewhat of a part in this. You would think, again, we haven't seen a rash of people go down and just everything go down like it did in just a few years, it seemed like, for Billy Graham. And then after that, when the scandals in 91 and 92 happened... Billy Graham front and center. He accused Pat Patterson yeah. of stuff, which caused Pat Patterson, who had been his tag partner in San Francisco. Yeah, that's right. To never speak to Billy Graham ever again. Wouldn't accept an apology, nothing. Because he was really the main person. Well, I shouldn't say that. He was someone most vocally, publicly. 
he was someone that people would think would know the real story and and why would he lie even though he was lying and when people were making accusations about terry garvin and mel Phillips, i say accusations i believe those stories are actually true yeah uh there was murray hodgkin who made an accusation against pat patterson he was later proved to be a career con artist but billy graham in that mix jumped in there to also point the finger at pat patterson and you know that's the thing where it was you couldn't tell how much of it was genuine anger or how much of it was you guys fired me at the end of 88 i'm never gonna let you forget it well and he didn't ever let him forget it except when he forgot it when they rehired him for various things and that was the thing is it it seemed kind of sad, and I know that it's been a lot of years that he's been in ill health and obviously, you know, needed help at various points, but it was almost like clockwork. Whenever any deal or affiliation or whatever would expire or the, they did something for him and the goodwill would wear off, then he would be back with the, oh, they're all horrible and they're possessed by the devil. And that kind of became the thing where it would bounce back and forth. But I guess over the last however many years, they've been copacetic. Or uh, were they? Were well, they no, on the outs again? Because he won the again. Hall of Fame. Did they fall out again? They fell out again after the Hall of Fame, for sure. I remember but seeing then the, did they fall back in again after that? That would have been something recent, because I remember seeing some stuff online just a few years ago. Like people got upset at him for saying that Adam Cole should get on steroids. <laughs> Which again, even if you think Adam Cole should be bigger, if one of the main things about your life is your body breaking down because of the steroids you were on, don't tell someone else yeah. to get on them. Yeah. But he was still out there, and I don't think, based on what I read, that he was necessarily in their camp at the moment. Okay, but that, well, and that's... Before he, got, before he openly got sick again, I don't know if that changed yeah. anything. Well, and, and they still paid tribute to him. And, you know... Uh... That's the thing. Vince has the soft spot there because he was superstar. Billy Graham was what Vince wanted to main event his worldwide company with. And he just didn't get to do the company in time or Graham was already too old and didn't make it long enough. You know what, though? Can I say this not to take anything away from superstar Billy Graham? But that was probably the best thing for Vince McMahon, because Hulk Hogan, personality wise, was the right guy for that spot for Vince McMahon. Yeah. I don't know if Billy Graham would have been able to have a five-year run as the champion, as the main baby phase, working a schedule. Even though Hogan didn't work necessarily the full schedule that everyone worked, just constantly on the run, constantly going. If you have substance abuse issues, you know, I mean, that's the time where they're going to really pop up. So I think all things considered, Billy Graham may have been the inspiration, but he probably wouldn't have been the right guy in the role for the long term. Oh, I, and I agree with that 100%. He, he would have got the spot, and at the, but at the same time, if he got it in 78, it, it, like you said, it wouldn't have worked out as well, but also there was no Hulk Hogan in 1978. Uh, but if he, was the, if he was the same superstar Graham, he would have drawn huge for the first couple of years, and again, especially in the Northeast. But over a longer period of time, he wasn't the not the wrestler, but he wasn't the employee that Hogan would be to go the extra mile to do all the, to want to get into movies, to do all the other thing. I don't think he would have been able to handle that like Hogan did. No. And again, perfect guy for Vince McMahon. Hogan hears that Ventura is going to start uh, a union and he goes and tells Vince, 
I don't know if Billy Graham would have reacted the same way. <laughs> the <top> star. <laughs> Billy Graham would have said, hey, Jesse, when, when can I be the first one to sign up? Can I bring in Ernie and Ivan to talk to everyone about what we did? Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh that's another thing. Bro. We've talked about it before, but when Graham and Ivan Koloff and Ernie Ladd were the top three heels in Vince Sr.'s WWF territory, they negotiated a deal where they would all three walk unless all three of them got main event pay, no matter which one of them was in the title match on top or whatever, they got paid the same thing because they were rotating them in and out against uh, Bruno or... Uh, yeah, Bruno was champion at that point. And they felt that they had all worked together to get the territory business doing that. So even if the guy was one guy was on top one night, all three of them would get the main event money. So that was a pretty fucking good deal. And in terms of you brought up before, there were so many superstar Billy Graham impersonate, not impersonators, but he inspired so many to the way the Road Warriors inspired so many people. Right. You know, Jesse Ventura being Jesse the Body Ventura. Very similar to Billy Graham in terms of not really being a guy in the ring that could, you know, go the way, you know, someone else may be able to go. Yes, actually, they had kind of a, a superstar was a little more mobile in his younger days than Jesse, but it kind of the same kind of thing. But Jesse Ventura, you brought up Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan said that Dusty Rhodes and Billy Graham were his inspirations for getting into the business, and the Billy Graham influence is obvious, but it's really another Billy Graham-influenced wrestler, Austin Idol, who Hogan took so much from when he went to Minnesota and started changing the promos, wasn't Idol Mania anymore. It was Hulkamania. Yeah. Another person influenced by the look and the style of Billy Graham. And, you know, again, the, the body was new, but the bleach blonde heel in... And the Northeast especially goes back to the Graham brothers, Jerry and Eddie, and to the Fargos, Jackie and Don. And to the, uh, you know, Shire brothers also were doing it at the time, Ray Stevens and Roy Shire. But the, the addition of the, the body and the physique, would not only, it, it, it grabbed people's attention in those days because most of the guys weren't built like that. And to be honest, in the 70s, when I was a hardcore fan, smart fan, whatever, you didn't want to see the bodybuilders because they were usually the shits, right? Their matches weren't any good. They just, the body looked Zulu. good. And yeah, you had Zulu. just seen Zulu, yeah. Yes. And the boys, even into the early 80s, the boys in the locker room most of the time would roll their eyes when a guy with a body came in the locker room. Because they're, ah, shit, here's another one you got to work with. He's going to be stiff and fucking hurt me and whatever. And it, it, and it wasn't until Vince just made it necessary that you have to have that kind of physique to get a decent job in the business that the boys even wanted to work with a guy with a physique, much less have one themselves. Because it not only wasn't necessary, but it hampered, in a lot of cases, the guy's ability to fucking work and in the territory days, who had time to go to the gym that often? You were in the car fucking eight hours a day. So, but then, you know, but that was the vision that Vince had, and Billy Graham fit it perfectly. Well, he certainly did, and superstar Billy Graham, people will still remember him and talk about him. There's a biography, as you mentioned before, WWE has produced a documentary in the past, and 
A lot of those promos are out there. The local promos are really what you want to try to find, but those promos are out there and a big influence on wrestling. I'm sure that influence will continue. And, uh, and as well, we'll see them profiled, I think in three or four weeks or whatever coming up on Well, we'll talk about it next week. We have Evan on for uh, dark side of the ring, the, the entire Graham family. You, the entire Graham family, meaning not just Eddie and Mike, but Dr. Jerry and even Billy? Jer- Jer- well, Jerry, Eddie, Mike, Billy, and occasionally Luke. Oh, even Luke? Wow. He's, sort, he, he's probably going to be, I mean, they've only got an hour, so he's going to be the Zeppo of the piece. But, uh, you know, it is the, the Graham family, but with, with some emphasis on modern day, but they... I have reason to believe, unless it doesn't make the final cut, they will reenact the scene of Jerry Graham stealing his mother's corpse. So we got that going for us. Uh, But anyway, but superstar Billy Graham. So there you have it. Um, You know, 79 years old, and most people have been thinking it was going to be, you know, bad for the last, as we said, 20 or 25 years, he's been in ill health. So. He was a fighter till the end, but you can't uh, you can't take anything away from the legacy or the the impact that he had on this business. And as we saw, as we just talked about, in a relatively short period of time. Did you ever see that footage? I know you're not a big fan of the Garden Shows from the late '70s, but it's a clip that now has gone around again. It's Billy Graham versus Ivan Putsky, and it's the build up to the Polish Hammer. Yes, and he hits it. Those people wanted to see Billy Graham lose so badly. They explode in the garden like nothing you've ever heard. Yes, that that was the thing is he was, they had never seen a heel champion in New York City. Uh, the, the top singles champion had not been a heel for more than three weeks in, in anybody's lifetime. Um, think about that because... I guess uh, Rogers was really, he was a heel. That was it. Yeah, that was really it. And he but, was briefly the champion because of everything happening uh, between his injuries and the politics. Yeah, that the, the thing is between, they didn't even use a singles world title in the Northeast. When Rocca was on top, he wasn't a, a champion. He was just the star. They didn't have a singles title until Rogers was the NWA champion and Vince senior was trying to steal him and the belt came along with it. But that was just for a, like a less than two year period. And then they, they took the belt off buddy and then he had the heart trouble. So since the thirties, all the champions had been baby faces. And now the people have this fucking guy that, like you said, Moscaris can't take him and Bruno can't win the rematch and Putsky can't stop him. And Chief J. Strongbow and whoever the Dusty, fun. Dusty. Dusty. They stole the title from Dusty in the garden, but he couldn't take it away from Superstar. So, yeah, it, it got to the point where any time that anybody looked like they had a chance, the people would come unglued. And that, it was not showing signs of slowing down. And an income's bad. I, I love Bob Backlund. He's a great guy. He's a heck of a person. But the most of the fans, they liked him for the first couple of years, as we've talked about. Hardcore fans hated him because he was namby-pamby goody two-shoes. And he just didn't, he didn't work compared to the 
colorful personalities that they had had before and after in that spot. No. And again, you watch those local promos and you have Billy Graham and the Grand Wizard, <laughs> two incredibly flamboyant personalities. And then you get Bob Backlund with Arnold Scullin and Vince asks him a question. And he's just, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to be working as hard as I can. It just, it's a weird promo, but it worked. Like you said, whatever you want to say, it worked for the first few years. By 82, by Snooker, Backlund was losing the fans and also cut his hair, started wearing a singlet. Yeah. Found a way to make himself unappealing to what the changing wrestling world was becoming. Uh, but uh, again, can you imagine? Can you imagine Billy Graham looking over at Bob Backlund saying, look at me and look at him, and he wants to put the belt on this guy? Uh, but anyway, um, it, did we miss anything? Any closing thoughts? Uh, no closing thoughts. We'll be back on the drive-thru in a few days, and we'll see how many tickets AEW Collision sells by then. That's a short story here at the end of the show. Apparently, they're having a lot of trouble selling tickets for the dates they announced so far. Apparently, they're what they're going to do now is they're going to change their strategy on all collision tapings going forward. They're going to let the people in free and charge them to get out. They think it'll be more profitable that way. Well, we'll see what happens on the drive-thru. <laughs> all right, that's your program. But since <laughs> this is my program and we've already gone over time, rest in peace, superstar Billy Graham. And for the rest of y'all, thank you. Fuck you and bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo